And welcome to the Thirsty Mage, the podcast where a group of friends get together for a pint and talk about video games. Our inaugural episode is a spoiler-laden discussion about one of my favorite RPGs of all time, Xenoblade Chronicles 2. I am your host and Toastmaster for the evening, David Lloyd. With me tonight is a gathering of Nintendo Podcast Elite, starting off with the self-described better half of the Talk Nintendo Podcast, and the co-host of the Thirsty Mage, Mr. Casey Gibson. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. And with us, uh, with us at the table, uh, thanks to Equal Parts Bribery and Extortion, are two men from the much popular and long-running podcast, Radio Free Nintendo, is Mr. James Jones. I didn't realize we were supposed to be drinking. Well, it's encouraged, but not required. I, I mean, that is more or less the same thing. <laughs> In the first intermission, we'll discuss what we're drinking, just so that we can prove that, yes, we are having pints. For good measure. Rubbing alcohol. Whatever uh, gets the buzz on. And we also have with us uh, Mr. Greg Leahy. Hello there. Yes, uh, first time in this sort of establishment for quite a while, I think. Do you have a pint that you'll be able to enjoy? We'll have to see what they're serving, isn't it? Is it going to be crazy blue milk or something like Star Wars? I don't know. (laughs) Only Argentinium's best. I'm fairly confident everyone in that that place drinks. If you were around Nopon all the time, (laughs) you'd need to drink too. Yeah, and I'm sure one of those barrels in that room was clearly for alcohol. Straight up moonshine. So why don't we start off with a little bit of uh, a back history about Monolith, just to talk about where Xenoblade Chronicles 2 came from and go from there. So if you'd like to lead us off, James, go ahead. Monolith was founded, what was it, 90... Yeah, is the number right here? 97, I think. But um, Monolith Soft was founded by uh, Tetsuya Takahashi, who previously had worked for Square... Um, including in games on the Final Fantasy series, and uh, also Xenogears, which came out, okay, it was 98, so obviously they weren't founded in 97. And then eventually they left Square to pursue their own ideas in 99 and started a, a, a subsidiary inside Namco under the Monolith Soft banner. And during the 2000s, they ended up, uh, well, so we can go through some of the games they, they, they did in here. Uh, so their first couple games were the Xenosaga, uh, one, two, and I want to say three, there were three, right? They, those were all published by Namco for the, the PS2, Xenosaga episode one and two, and maybe not a three. I can't even remember now, but then they made an exclusive game for Nintendo, uh, under a deal that Namco signed with Nintendo. I think this was also the deal that got Nintendo the, um, yeah, yes, the Tales of Symphonia. Uh, the, same, the same sort of announcement, they announced Baten Kaitos, uh, The Eternal Wings and The Lost Ocean, which I don't know why I remember that game's entire title, because it's ridiculous. Th- those two games were kind of announced together. That was sort of kind of the Namco equivalent of like the Capcom 5 or 4, I can't even remember at this point. And, uh, except those games came out. After, after Baten Kaitos, which was a card game, which was a JRPG slash card game where you had cards that essentially were everything. So items were cards, attacks were cards, magic were cards, and you had to build a deck, um, which I actually really liked that game. 
and uh, it's also incredibly poorly voice acted, and um, everyone wears terrible clothing, and I can't remember much else about it. They made a prequel, Baten Kaito's Origins, with, uh, that was published by Nintendo, and they also began around that time working on their crossover games, uh, like Namco, uh, the first one was Namco Cross Capcom, and then that, which eventually led into Project Cross Zone later. Um, but sometime around uh, Baten Kaito's Origins, Nintendo ended up purchasing them off of Namco. Um, and they ended up becoming the sole owner uh, of the company. At which point they went and produced the fantastic Disaster Day of Crisis, which I just listened to myself defend on a podcast not more than an hour ago. Which is not something I ever wanted to do. And uh, then... Uh, uh, amongst making a handful of uh, making a DS game and uh, Soma Bringer and a couple 3DS games and doing a bunch of tech work for Nintendo, they put out Xenoblade, Xenoblade Chronicles, whatever or originally Project Monado or whatever you want to call it, which of course pretty much brings us to where they're at now. Xenoblade Chronicles X on the Wii U, Xenoblade Chronicles Two on the Switch, which is what we're here to talk about. And a handful of other things that they that they developed or helped co-develop. I want to say they worked on, like, Dirge of Cerberus. Uh, I know, uh, Breath of the Wild. Yeah, I mean, for Nintendo, they did tech on pretty much every Zelda game that's come out on console um, since they were bought. They... I want to say they did one more thing that I can't remember what it was, but that, like they've, they've been involved in a lot of stuff uh, alongside Nintendo, or even stuff that wasn't Nintendo published. Um, they... Worked on a DBZ game at some point. Um, they did. They did some some lift on Smash. So like they're they're, they're busy. They They've got their ha- fingers all over the place. Yeah, because they have a studio that just does tech, and they have multiple game studios. So they they get around is probably the way to describe it. So I think it pretty much covers the history stuff. Um, did I miss anything? No, I think that's most of it. Now, I actually had a question. Did you guys uh, really get into Monolith Soft before Xenoblade? I know for me, that was sort of like the uh, the entry drug, if you will, was Xenoblade Chronicles. And then, you know, I played the subsequent ones. But I have never really gotten into, like, the old Xenosaga games or anything to that extent. I've played both the Baten Kaitos games. Baten Kaitos, the original game, is is bigger and more grand than Baten Kaitos Origins. So I kind of... I kind of love it more Baten Kaito's Origins in its restraint is is a better game but I've played them both to completion and I played a little bit of Soma Bringer which is only in Japanese and it's it's JRPG in Japanese I didn't get very far <laughs> that's always a, a good idea you know you know a little Japanese right it's not not enough to get through that <laughs> did they know what they're doing back then uh yeah I mean I, I think Baten Kaito's is like it's it's clever, um, and it does some neat things. And the combat system is a complete weird, unwieldy experience. But at the same time, it's pretty cool. You know the the, the card mechanics. Like to, here's a good example. Even in that game, physical attack. So using your weapon, I, I get magic as a card, and items are cards. But even physical attacks are cards. And in the original Baten Kaitos, every character had their own physical attack cards. And it'd be like level one, level two, level three. So if you had to put Liud in the party, who is a prince who is the worst voice actor in the history of video games, bar none, and he he uses a trumpet as his weapon, I don't I don't know. But if you swapped him into the party, you know maybe you took out uh, Mizuti, 
who's your mage. If you didn't swap out their attack cards, like, so you still had uh, Mizuti's attack cards in there, they would come into your deck and be completely, or come into your hand out of your deck and be completely useless because he's not there to use them, and Liyud wouldn't be able to physically attack. But the combos you could string together in that game were really cool. In Origins, they got rid of, they made, like, generic attack cards and stuff, so that simplified things dramatically. But there, there were some really neat ideas in that game. There's a couple moments in that game that needed some work, and it's... It's fine. It's very pretty. That soundtrack is Sakura, is uh, Matoi Sakuraba as hell, but it's it's pretty cool. It's but it's a far cry from where they end up with the Xenoblade games, and it's it's significantly less philosophical. In so far as you want to describe these games as philosophical, it it aspires to much less in that space. Cool. Alrighty. Well, how about we start getting into uh, the artistic design of Xenoblade Two? and discuss uh, the choices that were made and, and what we thought of it. If uh, Greg wants to uh, start us off. Yeah, sure. It's, it's uh, you know, I guess the biggest sort of, uh, for me, I've done like James, you know, my exposure to, to monolith stuff for kind of begins and ends with the Xenoblade games. Um, so that's kind of the, the frame of reference I've got for all aspects of their kind of uh, development uh, uh, kind of philosophies or preferences and all that, and I guess you know this was a, even though Xenoblade Chronicles X was you know, a major upgrade on the original Xenoblade in terms of visuals in a lot of respects because of being on Wii U, HD graphics, all that kind of stuff. I guess some of the kind of aesthetic still like had some consistency there in terms of the the characters, especially you know, and so. Even though, in many ways, this is kind of close, you know, close, you're pretty close to um, the way X looked on Wii U, on Switch now with with two, there's some significant differences that they went for. I mean, you could talk about the blades kind of later in terms of that whole kind of weird uh, spectrum of character designers that they got in uh, when, yeah, because that's not something that they kind of do themselves very much the the biggest thing i guess really is like with the a lot of the protagonist characters the 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 move to a more kind of conventional anime look um i guess you could look at that as like a marketing decision to some extent in terms of it's just you know kind of more um inviting to you know people that uh you know kind of might appreciate a lot of the other aspects of the game or you know apart from playing similar games that have similar looks but um, I think you know there was a kind of functional component to it with you know the protagonist characters that have those big expressive eyes. Um, it is kind of like um, you know when Nintendo talked about this with Wind Waker back in the day. You know that they wanted to have Link's eyes be so big in that because you know you, you could have him like tracking stuff in the environment and all that, and that just that it would you know convey emotion in the cutscenes, and that's kind of a pretty big deal here in Xenoblade 2 because you have got, like the other games, you know, ample you know, time spent in cutscenes, dialogue scenes, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I think it's this is by far, you know, how much you like, you know, the, um, the aesthetics of it, you know, uh, is one thing, but just in terms of the utility there, it is, it conveys the emotion better than than this this look does uh, than the previous games to my mind um so yeah had uh, that's something they've talked about the uh, the main character designer on this uh Masa, masatsugu saito um said that uh, the emotions of the characters needed to be very clear 
um, you know, and he wanted to uh, use the eyes to do that, just like they did on Wind Waker back in the day. So, you know, that 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 I thought was a good uh, sort of evolution from where they've been with the previous Xenoblade games. Uh, it's you know, a lot of people have kind of. Um, said about the faces looking funny or whatever in the old games. I mean, I kind of... I didn't dislike them that much. Obviously, there were technical challenges on Wii, you know, because it looked very low-res and stuff. Um, But, you know, the kind of aesthetic carried over into X, even though it wasn't low-res anymore. Um, But I I didn't really strongly dislike them, but you can't argue with the fact that these are kind of, uh, you know, bring more more expressive to the uh, to the story now and then of course there's the environment uh, component to the game which this you know, to me I've said many times that's what I've taken away from all the uh, the, the, the Xenoblade games I'm not sure how much um, you know this this is a kind of signature component of monolith games in general like but uh, you know their world design is always um, really quite impressive. Uh, first and foremost, in my mind, visually, you know, it, 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 there's that sort of um, fantastical kind of element uh, that uh, makes it really kind of impressive. But at the same time, they do enough to make it feel cohesive and like there's some kind of consistent, believable sort of, you know, if you if you let yourself kind of buy into it, uh, the the the, uh, the strangeness of the world, and that you know, very much applies with what they've done here um, with the, the the different titans. Um, you know, uh, so uh, Takahashi said about their kind of approach to the uh, the world building in this one. The Titans offer a wide variety of scenery, uh, while map design and level design for those maps is something that we at Monolith Soft excel at. We've changed some of the designs for this instalment compared to our previous games. Players found enjoyment in climbing up mountains in Xenoblade Chronicles X. Uh, the gameplay for this instalment can be summarised as climbing down them. There are sort of pathways that lead downward at many locations. Locations. Even if it first appears you can't climb down to a certain location, there may be routes where you can walk across girders or fences or hop across boulders to get to a new location. Um, so that's the thing. And because you know, the freedom that you had with X is kind of gone to a large extent. Um, you know, you like the crazy jumps that you could do in that yeah. even before the, the even before the scales and you know come into play. Can we spoil that game a little bit right now? Like is that Chronicles X? Like the 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 asinine story reason for well the jumps are like this because everyone's I mean you could they could just said grab it, everyone's a robot. Like I, I appreciate it because like climbing up a mountain is way more fun than going down it. There's there's no like there's not a big industry for mountain declimbers here. <laughs> Unless you got your uh, parasail. Yeah. It's funny when they were saying that, the thing I was thinking of first off was that that first time when you're kind of going down the hill and you see the open, like, Gormot, where on the way to Torgoth. Right, because you're coming down over the shoulder. Yeah, like, you go up you go up the shoulder and then you're kind of going down and then it kind of opens and you, you see the field and you see Torgoth in the background. That was the first thing that I thought of when I when I read what he was saying about the coming down a hill is like kind of being kind of in awe of the of where you could go. Yeah, I was thinking of the Letharian uh, archipelagos where you know you get those really big long shoots down to like the the cloud sea and then climbing back up those to the other sort of main areas in there. Yeah, 
It, so the game, the game visually in that respect creates a lot of what, what are referred to as visual funnels. Um, whereas in Xenoblade Chronicles X, uh, once you really even when you're even when you're in town, you're in New LA. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> everything everything is around you. So New LA is a big circle. Uh, and once you leave New LA, the same thing happens. The, the whole world is available around you. So you're kind of looking all around to figure out where you want to go. Xenoblade Chronicles 2 and, and Xenoblade Chronicles the, the original, um, there's a lot of just like straight sight lines. So there's walls kind of flanking you on either side, and they're just sort of pointing you towards the items of visual interest ahead. Um, Zelda Breath of the Wild, when they, when they talked about how they created visual interest at places they wanted you to go, talked about having to create it in a 360 space by having big things that stand out on the horizon to sort of guide your eyes to where they want you to look. Xenoblade X doesn't do a whole lot of that. It basically just says, I don't know, go nuts. But Xenoblade 2, they, they, they use visual funneling to kind of like drive your eyes down to like Torgoth. Torgoth is the end of a valley, effectively. There's a big giant mountain on one side, and there's essentially a ravine on the other because the, the you know the it just ends. the The closest you have to sort of the open ish space is probably on um in the Moradain area. I can't remember the name of the Moradainian Titan. E even then, it's you know the it's not that big. That's uh, the area around the elevator, and there's a big giant wall behind you that's pointing you towards the elevator visually, and then essentially the the world just drops off on either side. That's probably the open-ist area, I guess, visually. Uh, because even on Gormont, with the big open area, you're still basically either looking at Torogoth or you're looking back towards the way you came. Back towards the shoulder, back towards where the, um, the Titan ship builder is. Although you can't see him, but you're, you know, you're pointed in that direction. As a fan of X, do you miss that then? Like, would you... X, that wouldn't have worked in the kind of game they were trying to make here. Um, X, X's world is kind of an extension of its gameplay, uh, whereas X basically, there were story missions, obviously, but they basically, 90% of Xenoblade X, you're a blade, which now we're dealing with the term, the term mix-ups here, we'll, we'll just use the phrase, you're a soldier, and you're mm -hmm. going to work, and so you're exploring this new world, and you're finding stuff, and, you know, it doesn't feel like it's a lived-in world, it's, it's a... It's virginal. So, you know, you come up on territory that maybe there's no humans around. Uh, maybe, you know, if you get deep enough in some of these territories, you're not going to run into human settlements. And the settlements are, when you do find them, are just trailers. And maybe there's one or two people in there. It's just kind of a place to be safe for a little bit. Whereas Xenoblade 2 is meant to be a world that's had a history and been lived in. And so it makes, it makes sense that there's a lot more pathing because they want you to constantly be in contact with people because you're getting the story out of them. So just having the ability to just kind of explore wildly doesn't really make a ton of, like from a gameplay standpoint, like because they're trying to push you on a story, like just having these big worlds to do stuff in to get points essentially because that's all you're doing in X. You're just running up a score until you can get to the next story mission. Wouldn't really, wouldn't really make a mm -hmm. bunch of sense. Now, I liked running up the score, but I mean that is – if you want to make that game and debase it in the most, you know, scientific way possible, that's what that game is. You're making a bar go up until you can get to the next story mission. When you think of the world of, you know, Chrono uh, Xenoblade Chronicles 1 verse 2, do you prefer the two big titans, you know what I mean, and exploring those or having sort of this whole conglomerate, almost universe of titans sort of living in a shared space and seeing how they interact? Because I know for me, I really 
I loved going to the different Titans and seeing the different cultures and different, you know, the different way things were done on each Titan and how, you know, that sort of related with the rest of the world. Uh, opposed to, I mean, I, I liked the world of one as well. Um, I've been on record. I really, it's like, I liked uh, Xenoblade Chronicles X, but to me, it is like f far superior. I mean, uh, inferior, excuse me, of a game opposed to, to the other two. But for me, I really loved the fact that there were so many different Titans to explore and sort of go on and have different kind of areas. I, I, I think in general, the idea behind two offers them more flexibility, but I think in a lot of cases, they sort of just passed. So like Temperantia, there's stuff in Temperantia, but it's just a charred out husk. Yeah, it's a wasteland. I mean, I guess it's somewhat reminiscent of like uh, the the final section of X. Was it Oblivia? Was it? Was yeah, that Oblivia. It was but it's it's not. There's not as much in it, you know. You haven't got the sort of enemy fortresses or you know the the lava or whatever. It's not even quite that. Developed. Oblivia gave you the visual interest of like stuff used to be here, and I can't remember what the race that you're dealing with in Xenoblade. X is, but they're they're kind of making themselves at home. So you get to see how they're doing that. And so Xenoblade X does a lot of environmental storytelling, and Oblivia, despite being a husk, does do that. Temperantia is just there. Like it's just it's just a bit like yes, there was a big battle here, and they keep telling you, man, this was where the best civilization was. And you're like, where did it go? There's no ruins. And it wasn't like it blew up a billion years ago. It was like yeah, it's like a few hundred. 500 like, it's the yeah they keep referring back to the you know what happened 500 years yeah, ago like, many, many many times i would have liked to have seen more there and like indol indol itself this the praetorium is is this weirdly serene like but it, you know it's it's it feels right like it's kind of there feels pretty deep artifice there yeah it, it's the vatican <laughs> i mean yeah, it's the, it's the vatican but it, it also feels weird because like you wouldn't expect to go to the vatican and see people grousing about refugees no yeah that, that's true yeah. that's not what you would expect but you go to indol and there's always this kind of sense of like you're trying too hard there's something really off-putting here and it mm. plays out that way but i think the thing about xenoblade prime the original i don't know is that you saw the area's there's less variety, but you saw them evolve as you moved through them. There's something about when you move over to Mekonis, and you realize the world's not that different over here, but it's it's covered in goddamn robots, and and that that makes them feel a little bit more unsettling. Uh, it, it, yeah, like I said, what I always liked about the original Xenoblade, I mentioned this on our fan, is that you know how much that the, they kind of really like exploited that central sort of concept yeah the, the conceptual foundation of it is that these two things were fighting each other and then they kind of died or went into suspended animation and then the world kind of formed around them so it's like you know i mean you, you, not only do you kind of go across the sword or i mean that the arm that gets chopped off you go there like that that stuff where it's like okay you know they're really using the setup to create places to go it, it feels like it's more like you know, sort of grounded, like more embedded in the law rather than just oh, there's there's different titans and you go there and they're different. You know, it, uh, that that's kind of what I liked as as a storytelling component in terms of just visually and stuff. Like you do get variety here that you didn't get before, and of course the fidelity is so much better. 
um, you know, but uh, yeah, it is very pretty to look at and and very imaginative. It just it doesn't feel quite as kind of um, yeah, interconnected and and kind of of a piece as as the original did. Um, so it's it's kind of satisfying in a different way. But also, like I said the the big thing is just that with the 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 decision you know to go to a a, a narrative base, you're more linear, more uh, kind of a guided experience. And then sort of dialing back the mobility of the characters accordingly. All the environments are designed around those characters. So yeah, this whole notion of you know making your way down things is is not something you ever have to worry about in X, really. You know, but uh, in this case, yeah, they've made them environments that are more intricate as a result. But yeah, because they have a better expectation of like what kind of order you're going to approach them and everything. So you know, that, I think it's. Um, well suited to the kind of game they were making in general although you know the the, the traversal is not you know in terms of like going through thin like little you know sort of areas and all that it's still not ideal you know this is not a platform <laughs> so they can't push it too far I, I found the jumping in this game where the game asks you to do it's quite obnoxious and so there's a handful of places where uh, like on genbu where I like Genbu as a place. I don't know how best to describe it. Like there, that that more than Temperantia has the sense of oh, this is a ruin. Uh, because of course Genbu is home to a civilization that's absolutely falling apart. But like moving through that area, and this is probably part of the issue I have with this game versus the original Zeta Blade, is kind of a pain in the butt. And I don't know. I don't know how best to describe it. I, maybe it's because they put ice physics in a JRPG. Maybe that's part <laughs> of it, <laughs> which is just awful. Well, they and they had that one uh, ice slide. Yes. Near the bot, like right near the bottom, where you, yeah. You, oh, you're just flying down that thing too. Yeah, so. there, there's one of those in um somewhere else in the game too. But like it might be Uriah. I forgot. Yeah, the water slide. Yeah, it, but it takes you to, similarly to a secret area. Yeah. Visually, I think I think Genbu slash Tantal and Uriah are probably the most Xenoblade-y. Um, and I say that because, like, yeah, Gormont looks an awful lot like the planes of the Bionis. Yeah. Besides, besides the geology of it, like the crazy mountain structures, like they're not. It's not that interesting visually. Like it doesn't seem that fantastical. You know, it's 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 grassland with some rocky outcroppings and trees. When you get to like, when you get to places like Genbu, and it's just massive ravines that are just coated in snow, or you get to Uriah and the weather forecast is cherry blossoms, like that's yeah. that's when the game like kicks it up visually. Like, oh, oh, I'm here now, and that's when the game and Xenoblade did this. Xenoblade X does this. Xenoblade Two does this. That's where they start finding ways to use the music and the visuals in a way where the music is part of the game, the world design. Um, you know, going through some of the places, the, the music that comes with it actually starts to blend in with the visuals of what you're seeing. Um, you know, Mordain, not so much, but like Uriah, when you're in the, when you come across the first cherry blossom area in Uriah, like you see hints of it, like little pink on the horizon a bunch of times because you're going through those tunnels because Uriah is, for whatever reason, internal. Um, and then you get to that first big area with the giant tree and the music kicks over and it's, it's all part of the same. 
But yes, one is audio, one is visual, but they go together. Indal has the same thing where there's this constant like faux Catholic ch- choir like singing. Angelic, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and that that adds to sort of the artifice of what you're doing. Because, like, why are they singing all the time? That's weird. Uh, what I like about Uriah is just the way that it kind of it can fake you out with the expectations because, you know, narratively, obviously, you're going inside a Titan and all that. And then initially, it's kind of what you did expect from that in terms of kind of damp and dark and all that. But then the splendor right. hits you. And it's like, oh, actually... It's got the giant cathedral windows <laughs> that are made out of translucent skin, and it's really bright and beautiful and enormous. You know, it's uh, you know, kind of uh, just uh, kind of uh, that subversion of expectations of what you think about being inside a creature. You know, that that's, that is kind of a you know, it's not like Ice World Fire World's like right. trophy for a video game, but it's been done plenty. It's never looked like this. I mean, it's it's, it's, it's sensational. It's also the first time that game's exploded with color at you because up until that point you know we were on gormont like i said gormont is very green it's very green and then you were in the argentum trade guild which is mostly just like earth tones like there's colorful fabric and stuff and but you come around that first turn in Orion where you actually get to see the tree and you get to see you know the stained glass effect you're looking at and the game just explodes because everything is purple and pink and yellow and green the water is this like really sharp blue. Yeah, well, in the ether storm, like you can get an ether. I, I'm guessing it's an ether storm, but that that blue, it's not really rain, but it's it's like electricity almost. The sparkle mist. <laughs> it was kind of a mist of sparkle. I uh, I actually just went through it um, when I was with it was with Van Dam when we were going from the village to like the the city on the at the top of the mountain there. And, uh, yeah, there's like this glitter or, you know, hard to describe, but it just made everything beautiful because it made every, it was, it just kind of glowed and made everything just like you said, just, they're just throwing more color at you, you know? Right. I'm forgetting exactly where it was, but, um, I'm trying to, you guys might be able to, uh, refresh my memory here. It was one of the battles with Zeke before, you know, obviously he joins your team and it was right on the cliff where, I think he uses one of his big lightning spells or something, and then the the cliff ends up and he falls off of it. But yeah, that's Uriah. Is it? Your, it's still Uriah, right? Because I remember yep. looking off of that cliff afterwards, and just that was one of those moments that I ended up just sort of stopping and just really taking it all in because, like, like you said, all the colors are coming out, and I, I mean, there was just so many times I used that screenshot button. Um, <laughs> That I probably have hundreds and hundreds of pictures. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really I don't let you see color again because you go to Moradain. Moradain is very red and brown and unpleasant. And when you mm-hmm. when you're actually in the the city of Moradain, it's it's gross. It's metal. It's metal. It's earth tones. It's rusty. Well, it's got that um, that uh, industrial revolution look to it yeah and it's just it's just very like wastelandy you go to indol indol's very washed out in a lot of ways like it, it's very bright really it's like probably i don't know the is probably the next place you really get hit with color again 
Um, but it, it allows every place to feel special, which I think is one thing that this game has over Xenoblade, the original, is that every place has kind of its own thing, and there's a, there's a styling to it that you can feel. X does this really well as, as well, but in that case, it's super discreet. It's like you have crossed the threshold, you're now in the Frozen Lands. You have, you mm. have stepped over, like it'll literally be just a line on the ground of like ice, grass. You walk over it, you're now in ice. Whereas this, of course, by being separate, they can do more with it. And it looks, it makes it more striking as you translate, as you transfer across. Like when they, because they constantly get on ships to go to places, because of course the world's all disconnected. And like basically, you'll see the the sequence that plays out is usually the party is looking at looking at the Titan as they approach it. They become aware of something is happening usually, or their Titan's about to crash or whatever. And you get sort of like a quick a quick bang look at it, and then you're sort of dropped in the world, or maybe you just land normally, but you still only get like a quick look at it. And then you sort of get to just take in the visual. And so let's, let's East Place stand on its own. Moradain is basically Mars, like visually. Temperantia is like this pastel tropical place. Gormach just grasslands and, and forests. And like they, they have enough visual impact on their own that like if I'm trying to remember a quest line, because I've done almost all the quests, and it's like, I know I've seen this before. A lot of times I can piece it back together just from sort of the imagery in my head. I was like, oh, that must be in Gormont because I'm remembering what was around it. I'm going to go over there and deal with this. And so that, that, I think, is probably the strongest statement you can make is that it's, it's impactful enough that a month removed from the game, I can kind of remember the areas around the game world. Well, and uh, like you're saying, the music, too, is very unique. Like you hear, you, once you hear what's playing, you know where you are. If Casey wants to talk about how they came up with... The musical score, because it's, it's one of the, the key features of Xenoblade 2. Yeah, for sure. Now, like you said, the, the music and the art style go hand in hand so well. And so this music, the soundtrack, is... I've been listening to it, you know, on and off since, you know, while playing it and then after I was done completing it. It's just... It's it's very varied. And, um, you know, it's got a number of really great, uh, you know, people who worked on it. You got Yasunari Matsuda... Yeah, Mitsuda was the director. He he ran everything, and then yeah, Ace was a group that that helped him. Of course, you got Kenji Hiramatsu and Manami Kayota, and now they said uh, Ace primarily handled the field music, and um, Hiramatsu handled the battle music. But there were over three hundred total musicians who worked on it, and twenty thousand sheets of uh, <laughs> worth of music. Matsuda said this is one of your is the largest project he'd ever work on worked on so it's it it's a pretty robust soundtrack um I mean like you said there are just you can hear tunes or some music and just sort of visualize where you were when you heard that music first um and then of course you know when you're in the villages you're going to probably hear those those soundtracks a little more as you're going to quest and sort of dealing with you know purchasing stuff so you hear that music a lot but I never once ever felt that, you know, I was tired of hearing music, especially when, you know, JRPGs, you sort of factor in the battle music. Um, you know, you're going to be listening to this for hours on end, especially when the battles in uh, Xenoblade 2, especially early on, they last quite a while. You know, you don't really ever get to that point where you're just like, oh, I'm just going to steamroll this entire group in two seconds because I'm overpowered, you know? Generally, the battles take a while, so I think it's sort of a testament that you could hear that same battle music and it never really gets too old. I'm going to spoil something for you. 
you don't hear the same music throughout the game. In fact, areas have their music change later in the game. The, for a good example is the, the, the oh shit, we're fucked music that plays when, when you've angered something mm-hmm. uh, actually changes at a certain point in the game. I didn't even realize it until later that it actually, it's, it's similar, but it switches. Some of the battle music does the same thing. The game actually recognizes at some point I'm going to refresh my music palette and does. Which is a neat little trick that they put in there, but like it's it's totally unnecessary. They could have gotten away with not doing it, but they did it. I I kind of dig that. Like that's a that's a neat thing to do. I mean, it's it's a just a touch to add to, you know, giving the player more stuff. No, that's really cool. I mean, like you said, to give that extra little something, and that would explain why I never felt like it got stale. <laughs> if you beat the game, you probably heard the the second music in the places that changed a lot more than the first song. Um cuz I think one of them changes like after the first the first real torna throwdown. It's like, well that's that's like 25 hours into the game. There's a lot left to go here. But yeah, like it's it's a neat little thing where they flip the music on you. And I didn't cuz I didn't realize it until back to the soundtrack and I'm like, "Wait a minute, they did change. It. This is the original battle music and I haven't heard this in a long time." Oh, they really, they really did change up the battle themes. Not all of them, but some of them. Kind of cool. Uh, there's, a lot, there's a lot of conditional battle themes. Like, depending on what you're fighting, the music will be different. Which also gives you some extra variety. And there's just a ton of music in general. I, I, think, I think some of the character themes are probably... You know, we talked about how the music blends with the world. And Xenoblade X does this a lot. Xenoblade Original does this a lot. But the character themes are on point. Like, so on point. Rosa's theme is straight up a, parod- a parody of Meisinger Z, which is, a, which is a mecha anime from, like, the 70s. And Rosa is, like, the dumbest-looking mech in the history of video games. It's a lot like the impact music from Goemon, if you've ever heard that. Because, yeah. again, it's it's giant mech battle, battling. Yeah. So it, it, it totally, you know, that kind of TV show just parachutes in out of nowhere. Yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of incongruous, but it's also you know, very much fitting for the very silly antics that are going on at that yeah. point of the story. Like you, you, it's it's it works well because that song is so so outrageous. It's it's also good. Like it's it's a really good song, but like it adds to a. It gives you an idea of what the hell the Nupon really are about. Like you just go like, oh. They're all idiots. Never mind. I thought maybe it was just my nopon, but no, it's the whole it's the whole group. The whole group are idiots. This is an entire race of idiots. Great. <laughs> and at some point, like at, like to to jump ahead a little bit to finish off the thought on Rosa. At some point, after this dumb music plays, after you fight a, a giant mech with skills called like ba- boom boom lasers, um, and other ridiculous names like that, where they scream them out because it's an anime at this point, they. Basically, Tora expresses concern that like Rosa shows the maximum nuponness of design. It's like what? No, I don't. No, go away. I don't want to deal with you. You're the worst. It's, but you know, uh, Zeke. Zeke again is an anime character. Zeke is the ultimate anime character. Oh, and his, for sure. And his music is so on point that it's like the there's a there's a. The fact that his music's playing when he's having this dumb this dumb dialogue about wanting to call himself Zeke the Chaos Bringer, Bringer of Chaos. The Zeke Anator? Yeah, he's like he's put the word chaos in his name three times and the music's still playing behind him. It's like, no, no. The the music was part of the joke at that point. Like they took they had this song. They had a joke they wanted to tell about Zeke. 
that that Zeke is absolutely just he he's 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 a self-proclaimed hero of shining justice and the the composers were in on the joke and they came in they came on board and did it well that's the thing is the music always seemed to clearly represent what was happening at the time yes it was just perfect like and even i think it was funny i was trying to go back and thinking of like of all this music what was my favorite but i i kind of still go back to the they used similar music at the end of each chapter during like the the big reveal or the big emotion and it, it just hearing it it just got me like oh man i'm getting pumped now this is this is it you know this is a big moment and it it, it just, every time i heard that i was just it was just like the perfect music for the perfect time uh, it's, I mean, it is obviously compared to X, you know, it's, it's a reversion to the original like, because Ace and Mitsuda, you know, it worked out. It, you don't get um, Shimamura back um, in this case. So it kind of, it, you know, there's certain there's a certain kind of tranche of, of songs from the original Xenoblade that don't have like counterparts in this like a lot of a lot of the original soundtrack kind of does have stuff that's like oh yeah this is you know kind of uh two's kind of take on that kind of song but you know because shimamore isn't back it, it, it's not universally true so it, it, it's got it, it's it's got a lot of the same people so it comes through but yeah yeah it's this it's, it's got a, it kind of helps in a way you kind of make it a little bit more distinct from the original soundtrack but yeah, you do kind of miss her, her stuff too, so it's kind of a little bit mixed in that sense. But yeah, there's a lot of uh, very enjoyable stuff. I did actually like the fact that the choral components were not in a language that is just like uh, you know that nobody's going to understand or very few people are going to understand. Um, the temptation is usually to do it in you know Latin or sometimes just outright gibberish. Um, I think there was a, ca- a famous case with. Uh, the last Brosnan Bond movie where they had some choral bits for when this ridiculous space station sets fire that was just people saying, look at that giant umbrella backwards. Yes. I mean, that is, you know, it, it was actually nice towards us just like, no, we'll, we'll, we'll write intelligible lyrics and, uh, you know, you'll be able to hear it and it will still work. You know, yeah. that is... just going to say that ensemble is actually from your group of islands. Yeah, well, you know, as we know, Mitsuda is very fond of the Celtic yeah, uh, sound uh, t- in his music, so it's no surprise that they would draw from that. And it's funny, the story, I read, a, he was telling the story about um, when he was putting it all together and he had them in mind, and then when he finally kind of got the go-ahead of like, okay, we got to start booking people here, and uh, that day he looked up, okay, where are these guys, I want them. They just happened to be in Japan the day they wanted them. <laughs> Good they timing. were doing a concert. He could like so. They, apparently, they like ran to the to the concert to try to book these guys to to get them in before they left. So it was a pretty neat story to hear from uh, Mitsuda. But it's also funny just to to hear it's like uh, that he's a big fan of of uh, you know folk oh chorus if, I, like if you gave. If you gave in, if you gave him a job and said you can't use anything Celtic, he would just sit there and stare at you for like an hour. He's like, I don't know, I don't, I, I quit. <laughs> I don't, I don't know what to do. Uh, help, help, help. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I will say the um, sort of was what's it called again? Um, Rex's hometown. Oh, uh, uh, Fonset. 
but yeah, Fodson. It's it, it that is you know very much your classic kind of RPG sort of you know rustic uh, idyllic place in a in a game. Um, you know, and it has the music to match, so it's the kind of it's kind of an established uh, you, you kind of type of of theater, well a well traveled kind of uh, concept for a setting and a song. Um, but I think maybe to do with the fact that you don't go there till quite a bit into the game. Yeah, it's you weird. Know, you, usually you start there. You know, that is you know, the the hero's journey is always he lives in this you know uh, rustic you know kind of out of the way onto you know Hobbiton basically uh, you know and uh, and then he has to leave for some reason and things get more threatening and everything. But the fact that he went there in the middle kind of just freshened up that kind of traditional uh, you know kind of theme a little bit, and uh, I do really like that that theme. And of course, you got the night components as well. Yeah, you know, the the night very variations as well day and night yeah. variations that always kind of you know sort of amend it in a very suitable way usually kind of taking it um you know do you change the instrumentation maybe you know lower the tempo and um yeah but both variations for that are really really good yeah a little more soothing the night themes usually usually yeah theosuar's theme uh the the capital of of, of uh Tantau is um also like gets is really like melancholy which which goes well with the fact that this place is basically doomed like oh yeah it's very it's kind of like i don't know maybe like um minas tirith like under under denethor or something you know it's like it was great but (laughs) things are are really bad right now and like it's not the only city that you know is doomed. I mean, they're quite they're quite explicit that Morardain is doomed. Yeah, Morardain. The whole it's not just the city, or it's yeah, the the whole the whole Titan's yeah, going co- continent Titan. Yeah, is 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 not for long. Well, right every anymore. every time the next quest was coming around, you're it made you think like, is this when Morardain sinks into the cloud sea? But the, it's coming. The thing was like they even the music in this case gives you a clear contrast though because we're more ordain said well, we'll just start a goddamn war like we're we're you know we're not going down like this yeah uh, they'll, they'll just colonize other places where you know, with t- with tanto it's more like they're just kind of yeah retreating into themselves you know there's the whole kind of protectionist storyline we know uh, it's coming which, and uh, it is kind of funny and and just that yeah it's it's it debates the music there is it's just kind it's of an like elegy. a lament it's a lament or something like, yeah, that, that uh, you know, of like, well, of the, the greatness lost and, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's, it's basically they're, they're singing their own funeral theme. It's, it's like, we're, we know we're done. We know it's going to happen. You I know. To I, put it that way. I you did, had to put I, it I that didn't. way. And like, like they're, they're upset about it, but they're not doing anything. Um, and then, in fact, that's that's sort of like the spur for Zeke. Like that's what sends him out there, and that's why his music being so bombastic, when everyone else on that entire continent is just reserved and <laughs> just doesn't want to talk to people. And you meet Zeke and Pandoria, who are just <laughs> idiots. Like just well, yeah, they're basically when you meet them at first, they're they're, they're anime Team Rocket, you know, yeah. Jesse and James. Oh, absolutely, and, that's perfect and, way to put and the it. and the turtle is Meowth, presumably. Well, no, because Turner just wants to escape. <laughs> like that's there's like a weird secondary. Yeah, still, that does like, make <laughs> him the it does that does make him the cleverest of the three, which is like Meowth. Yeah, it's true. And then that was that was a great line too just to bring that up too the never touch a man's turtle it's true uh, my i mean my my favorite way to describe those two is the third or fourth second or third time you're fighting zeke before the fight nia asks him about his cute eye patch 
And he, <laughs> he responds that the eye patch can, could, uh, hides a power that no man can control uh, <laughs> that would turn you all to ash in an instant. And Pandora's back there covering her eye in pantomime with him, like, like she's wearing an eye patch. And then very quickly points out, it's definitely not because we can't afford a second contact lens. And you're like, <laughs> oh, these two are the worst. Uh, and no, it's, it's, it's funny how, like, how, yeah, because they are presented that way initially, just how deep they end up going with, with his storyline, you know, his backstory, and then how involved he gets. It was like a shock that he'd be playable, but it's kind of a shock that, that, that he, they spend so much time kind of trying to round him out. Like, you know, it was like you, you, you're kind of introduced to him as, as an idiot, but then you know he, that is he's and they still make fun of him a lot. He's ba- you know he's sort of a a pinata for the other characters to to kind of uh, you know, hit, knock jokes out of him. But you know he does get more kind of relatable and, and important to the story and whatnot. You start to realize why he's the way he is, but. It, broadly speaking he probably has the most sincere relationship of any character in the in the game as well because like you get the sense that he and pandora actually are you know they've been around each other for a long time they care about each other whereas most of the blades and and characters are kind of like yeah they like each other a lot and they're important but like those two actually you know they feed off each other in a way the others don't now that's probably for the net for the net negative of their well-being but they sure do (laughs) Yeah, I totally didn't think Zeke would be. I mean, like you said, I figured he would be playable, especially I mean, he's on the after box. the. Yeah, well, yeah, that's true. I, I, I got the collector's edition, so it was like the steel box. So okay. Even, but uh, yeah, I figured obviously going to be playable, but like you said, they really did flesh him out, especially towards the end there, where you sort of see a lot more into him. And I was, frankly, I was surprised um, because he is such a goon, like the over-the-top goon in the beginning. And like and like Greg said, he always sort of keeps that gooniness to him, but they sort of flesh out that he's not all, you know, and co- comedic relief. The thing is, he's just 10 years removed from Rex. Like, you know, he was basically Rex at some point. And Rex isn't that far from getting to where he is. Like, Rex, Rex is, is an anime goober as well, but, like, he's just not... He's not decided he has special powers behind his eye patch that he's wearing. Yeah, he's not. He's not conceited like Zeke. That's, yeah, that's like difference. he's a two-eyed monster. He's not gotten there, but he could. One thing that I thought was interesting, since we're just going to kind of get into the characters a bit here, is that while while Zeke and Pandoria get it bad, like they get they get made fun of constantly. And in fact, the worst is poor Zeke gets it from Pandoria, who has no no grounds to make it here because she's just as bad. Or occasionally you'll get a hint that maybe she's just playing along. But, like, everybody gets it. Tora gets it. Uh, Tora gets it bad. Tora is also the punchline constantly. Um, but it's more because he might be a sexual deviant. <laughs> uh, might be. Well, I mean, we, we never we never quite get to the point that it's sexual. But, like, eh, eh, not comfortable with this. Poor Poppy. Nia, Nia, Nia gets it really bad. Uh, Nia, Nia is supposed to be your, your kind of observer of, like, wow, they're all idiots. But, oh yeah, yeah. She, she's definitely like the the person who's sort of consistently baffled by everyone else being so weird, and and you know, kind of meant to echo probably the average person's reaction to the to the madness. 
but then early on in the game, it's hilarious when she freaks out over that picture of her. Yeah, so she you know, on the <laughs> on the wanted poster. She has she has a fragile ego that's easily easily damaged, and she's quick to anger. So she gets made fun of a lot too. But even the characters that are you know supposed to be rather staid, like Morag, like she has her moments where she gets it. Like they, everybody has the gun turned on them at some point and is made fun of. You know, there's there's a there's a heart to heart with. Zeke, Poppy, or with uh, Zeke, Tora, and Morag, which is not mm. a good combination right out of the gate. Where, At the hot spring, right? Yeah, where <laughs> where you realize Tora doesn't realize that Morag's a woman, and yeah. cannot figure out why Morag won't bathe with him. Is it because he's a no pond? And then Zeke is <laughs> Zeke is losing it, but because he's an idiot, has decided that he's just going to play along, and you just get to watch Morag fall apart. And because A, she can't say no, and B, she's incredibly embarrassed and angry and frustrated, and now realizes at some point that this Nopon thinks she's a man. Well, that that whole inter- that interaction I actually have as my Twitter profile. There you go. Uh, yeah, when when Z goes, uh, "Hey Morag, how about you put on a skirt and some heels next time?" Yeah, and she responds by saying, "How about you die in a fire, Z?" <laughs> yeah, like she overreacts immensely to that situation, considering all the shit Zeke gets, including from her. She really has no grounds here, but like everybody, even the most reserved characters get punched in the face a little bit, which I think is good because I think it made the characters feel a little bit more relatable, like a more like I enjoyed being around them more because there wasn't always this character. Oh, well, they're they're pure. We can't we can't throw mud at them a little bit. And it sort of adds to the fact that they're all traveling together. You know, if you're with a group that long, you know, every day for hours on end. Of course, you're gonna sort of poke fun at at some everyone at some point. Poor Poppy's probably the only person that doesn't get made fun of, but because she's such a joke in and of herself, that like it's hard to do it. Uh, I think she just makes everyone uncomfortable, which, which is fine, I guess. <laughs> well, and Rex, he literally gets punched in the face at one point. Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, he deserves it though. Rex is made fun of all the time uh, by everybody. Like, like I like that though because it, it made it. It let them show writing, like situational writing, not like plot writing, um, that they could just have fun with. Because you just go off. And in the first Xenoblade, there's some of that, you know, Shulk, Shulk gets made fun of, Ryan gets made fun of. But a lot of the characters were mostly left alone. Well, Rex didn't, I didn't even feel like Rex's backstory was uh, all that laid out. Like, I know there was hints of, you know, what happened to him and what happened to his parents. But it wasn't explicitly like spelled out. This is what happened to Rex. It it, it was just kind of they kind of left him as a an open vessel almost, just this optimistic, uh, cheerful guy, you know, that never got him down. But you never knew why he was always well, so, like. So Greg kind of nails it when he mentions that you don't get to lift to Lithuania until very late. Uh, Rex more or less starts in Meteores. Like he's already left home. He's already made a made a, a future for himself. He's already grown up beyond his years. Um, you know, he's sending money home. Like rec- whereas most of these kind of JRPGs start with the hero in their hometown. Um, you know, Tales of Symphony, which I mentioned earlier, has the infamous scene where your main character and his best friend and another one of his friends who are all party members start in their elementary school classroom with their teacher who happens to also be a party member. It's like this, you couldn't, you couldn't demote them any lower than we're putting them in a classroom that has like hand-drawn crayon pictures on the wall. You couldn't make them any less adult unless you like start them in diapers. But in, in Rex's case, Rex has a job. 
he's he's supporting a family back home, although it's not like he didn't birth this family. It's just it, this is his family. You know, he owns a ship. Like he he's at a he is except for his age an adult. And so, you know, them not harping on his backstory kind of makes sense because presumably he's already through it. I mean, he did. You know, yeah, it, it, it's kind of nice as well. Because I was kind of wondering, you know, because obviously Shulk's, um, you know, sort of, he's, he's not so much his parentage, but he's like his origin is a bit of a mystery. And then that ends up being a huge plot point in the right. original. So when you had that question with Rex, it was kind of like, oh, you know, they're doing it. But in, in, in the end, uh, you know, it does this kind of say, well, it doesn't really matter. It's just, it's just that, you know, to explain that it, this is a kind of a young guy out there doing, you know, you know so he's got this sort of youthful enthusiasm, um, that, but at the same time is doing things that a person his age wouldn't normally be doing. It just, it, I, I kind of like the fact that it didn't, it didn't end up being really important to the plot. It was. It, it's just. It is just his backstory. It's not the backstory for the game. The you know, for the for yeah. the whole narrative or something. I guess you know it's getting more in vogue these days. It's like who are his parents? Oh, they're nobodies. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> there you go. It's getting more and more popular. Uh, I mean, apparently. Rex. Rex was largely right place, right time. I mean, every other character has a reason why they're there, which is part of you know. At some point, the story deals with that. Rex is like the only reason I'm here is because. He's a, he's a kid who who fell really hard for a hot girl. Like he basically and, well, and it was, it, it just he just happened to be there when you know the, 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 they were you know finding Pyra and then the, well they the, needed a Leftharian. Yeah, they needed a Leftharian. Yeah, exactly. Which he isn't a Leftharian. So it doesn't even make sense. No. Like they explained that 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 got me really upset because I'm like, well, oh, is this where the twist comes? Because he's not really Leftharian because he came from somewhere else. And if you look at the Leftharians, he sure as shit isn't one of them. <laughs> well, you you can't prove that the parents weren't left yeah, there. Maybe you can. Passed. They say they say they came from a different place. Yeah, well, <laughs> they could have come from there originally, though, and then gone lived somewhere else or something. <laughs> I, yeah. I, uh, they're, well, they're, it, I don't mind it though. Uh, I, I kind of enjoy that the less backstory because it put more focus on the relationships between the characters. Mm-hmm. Everybody else gets to grow, whereas Rex Rex sort of grows simply through the the advancing of the plot. Everyone else grows as side stories and. In some cases, it's just straight-up plot. Like, I mean, Morag probably grows the least, but she needs to grow the least because she's, she's, she's the only functioning adult in the party. Yeah. Yeah, which, she's already situated. Which is which, – and like, that's a low bar to set, functioning adult, but she's the only one. <laughs> Everybody else has to kind of move along and deal with, deal with backstory stuff except for her and Rex. Rex. Rex just has to keep motivated. What did you guys think of the whole Nia – you know, obviously, the, for however many hours of the game, she's just a party member with you, and then sort of revealed later on that she is indeed a blade eater, which uh, means that, you know, she... She's the other one. She's a flesh eater. She, she's a blade who ate human flesh. Blade eater is a human who merged with the blade core crystal. Yep, all right, yep. Yeah, this is like the uh, Tygon Liger thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but one... What... She, was, she, was initi- she was initially a blade? Yes, I thought she was somebody's daughter. No, so she. My understanding. Well, keep in mind, she doesn't look. She doesn't look like any Gormati. Like, actually, look at her compared to the other Gormati. She doesn't look anything like them. Because the thing that threw me off was the dad. Because the because Dromark is the blade of the dad. Well, so she had a sister, and that was that was the 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 flesh that was eaten. Is my was my understanding. Yeah, I'm looking at the wiki. It says she's a flesh eater. Yeah, because because uh, blade eaters don't get blade powers. 
they just they just effectively get to live forever. So you think about the uh, I'm trying to remember what what the uh, the head of the Indal Praetorium's name was. Oh, Amalthus. Al- Al- Amalthus, yeah. Like yeah. he he still had to use the blade whose core crystal he had taken part of to do to do the purification ritual. Um, Zeke Z- Zeke also being a blade eater didn't gain any powers. Um, it just it just let him continue living. Uh, Rex doesn't gain powers. He's still using Pyrus powers. Everyone's a fucking blade eater. Like I just realized this. Everybody in this game is, <laughs> yeah. either, is either a flesh a whole eater band or a blade, of blade eaters. Eater. I think it, it, it was. I don't know. It, it was kind of. I, I, I wasn't that kind of. They uh, telegraphed top. it pretty hard. They they did. Obviously, we had the the, the healing sequence with the Ardanian Emperor and all that kind of stuff. I mean, so. But I so you're kind of waiting for what the the twist is with her. But I I kind of just liked her better as as the you know the kind of normal one of the group. But then it's like, oh no, actually she's not that normal. She she's got crazy secret powers or whatever. Um, I, it just felt like a kind of somewhat unnecessary kind of convolution uh, for the for the story. But I guess you know maybe they felt like they needed to do something with her character. Um, rather than have it, you know, because like you said, some of the other characters are fairly constant, like, you know, Morag and Rex. Yeah, I think, I think the, the one thing that it does is it establishes some amount of why she was with Torna, because Torna's all Blade Eaters. Like, that was the point. So they have the, the hot tub scene where when she gets out, I can't remember who it is, observes the, the core crystal and basically says, do you want me to keep, oh, it was Morag, do you want me to keep this secret? And like, at that point, I was like, wait, everybody in Torna's a Blade, oh, Fuck, she's a blade, isn't she? And then the healing scene, I'm like, yep, that's what we're dealing with here. But like, I guess, I guess it helps explain what Torna is because she couldn't be with Torna if she was just a human. I guess like that wouldn't that wouldn't have really worked out. I suppose I don't know. It's weird. It's she's she's a weird character in that way because she personality 180s too at some point, not all the way, but but like quite a bit. But I like I like her as a blade because holy shit, holy shit, she's oh. a useful blade. Yes, she is. She's effectively invincibility in blade form. But yeah, it, it I get your point though, because it feels it feels like we lost the one character that grounds us in this world. But I guess at that point they've sort of shunted you over to Rex. Rex has Rex has toned it down a little bit as he's matured. He he understands what he's doing isn't just like I'm gonna go on an adventure with this hot girl. Um, you know, he's sort of taken on more responsibility for the role of the as his leadership role in the party. We've already had the, the, the infamous Rex nervous breakdown scene where they establish firmly that he is the reason this is all going to work. And he's sort of less childish at this point. So maybe that was kind of them finishing that handoff to like, okay, now you're really you're just with him now. He's not gonna act like an idiot anymore. He's not gonna he's not gonna do all the dumb stuff. He's just gonna go and do his business, and you're going to kind of stick with him, and we're going to push everybody's plot down to this is Rex's story now. Because fr- from that point, it was everybody's story. Everybody was having their thread where they'd run off and do stuff. You know, Morag ran off to go deal with the fact that her brother was in peril um, and that Moradain was in, was in trouble. Zeke had his lung where he dragged you through the ice to deal with his home his problems. Tora, at this point, you've probably gone and made Poppy QT Pie, which is a nightmare of a name. <laughs> Yeah, God, ridiculous. Very, <laughs> very protracted quest, too. Oh, my God, yeah. That was a pain in the neck. And you've dealt with all of his stuff. You know, he's had his his was pretty early, his problems. And then you have the second round where, like, he has to deal with the fact that his blade is now 
let's just say is better than him and and knows it. So Nia has her arc where she moves, and as everybody sort of wraps up their personal arc, they become largely sublimated to the main quest. Like they're they're now they've dealt with their distraction. They're now focused on the main quest. I guess this was their way of dealing with Nia's, and in so doing, everybody's attention is now on Rex, who's the only person who has the outstanding question left. It's they have to go deal with his problem. Like I get it. It's giving her something to wrap it up, to wrap up their works, and I guess her being a blade eater or excuse me, a flesh eater gives some context to her working with Torna and where she is and who she's from and why she always was dodgy. I guess that is a good enough answer. Making her a blade, I guess, just works because I liked having her as a blade. Oh, I know it was great. She was uh pretty much the second I found out, or you know, the second she was able to be a blade. Instantly, yeah, she was Rex's blade. She was so nice to have. I didn't use her for a while because I had her in the party as a healer, and I'm like, well, no, I need yeah, her. Yeah, no, that was me. She's an excellent healer, and then I I had to do it for her quests. Like, I wanted to get her, her you know, her stats up so I could run some of the quests, thinking she would have some. She doesn't. And I'm like, oh, never mind. She is she is an, a healing nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> the, the best part about her, and I talked about this on RFN, I've alluded to it rather, is that her her level four special just absolutely causes the game to shit itself. Oh man, and then the joint oh, level four so special. Bad. It's like, oh, it's 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 480p stretched out at that point. It's, <laughs> it looks like you're watching a bad Twitch stream. Oh, uh, it's it's so good. That's a good point, because we'll be we'll be talking about that after the intermission. But maybe just to to kind of finalize and put a bow on the, the blade talk. Did anyone else get Zenobia? Yeah, yeah, I had Zenobia re- really quite early. Because yeah. all of her affinity was based on defeating the named monster. Tyrants, yes. You guys all went through it? I did, I did her quest, and I did most of the tyrants she wants dead. The problem is, you don't get credit for having already killed them. Yeah, no. That was the thing that annoyed me, because some of them, I'm like, I couldn't find the person. I couldn't find the tyrant, and it, it, it just it took a while for me to realize. Oh wait, I gotta go find the gravestones. Yeah, I just googled them at some point. I was like, I I can't be bothered. I um, because <laughs> I I did pretty well in this game's battles and was hunting tyrants, you know, five ten levels higher than me. And so at the point by the time I got Zenobia, like most of the tyrants were dead. It's just like, well, I, I've killed them all. So, <laughs> well, I even googled, like I googled it too, because there was some where I uh, it was just it was too too long. I was like screw it i'm gonna go find it but even then like i google it and they'd be like well it's in this area and i'm like this area is huge like, how about <laughs> you break this down for me a little bit yeah a little little more precise <laughs> yeah it's in the fields of gorman like oh come on guys like, yeah give me something thanks here. <laughs> i've ended up finding a list where it's like all right go here warp to the spot walk 12 steps this way turn left there's your gravestone it's like got it thank you is, is there any blade that anybody like really adored um, one of the earlier blades that I got was, uh, Ursula, and she is, like, the little girl with the, the big polar bear. I have never got this one. <laughs> well, it was a good thing, because her, her affinity tree was miserable. It's really bad. It, it's, it's honestly, like, I used her for a lot of the game, and, like, I was just like, I'm not even gonna bother doing some of these later, because uh, some of the earlier quests were, were cool, like, you'd go to the fountain and you'd sort of, you'd realize she likes playing music and singing kind of thing. 
So, like, it was like, okay, but then you start to look at some of those later requirements, and it was just like, it's it's not even worth it. It's mercenary missions. So you had to send her out on a lot of mercenary missions. And so you had to boost her her performer skill, which required you sending her on mercenary missions to level them up. And it just takes forever. Um, And so, like, I had her on dozens and dozens and dozens of mercenary missions just to level that skill up. Um, But she was a really good healer for me um because i had her and boreas on on uh nia and so like that combo of two healers with nia was was just like okay i can't be killed now yeah i never have to worry about damage i was the same way with nia but uh instead of ursula i used florin mm. so i had florin and dromark and then uh, i rounded it out with electra i <laughs> enjoyed her storyline for me, it's it's probably ones like a, a zombie who's just creepy um, and just unpleasant, gen- like just genuinely unpleasant. Very stalker-esque yeah. on uh, Rex. <laughs> uh, so I, I have her on Zeke, and Zeke has some excellent dialogue to when she comes out. To just like, I, just, he's very uncomfortable about this whole situation. And Vess had a really good, had like was like a really nice storyline and stuff to go with. And like... To, I don't know. I, I, there's a couple blades I really liked, and I think probably my favorite of the group is probably someone like Adenine, who's just a bunch of belts with books and says really conceited things about being like being smart. It's, I don't know why. I just kind of enjoy like <laughs> the idea they have this hyper genius in this party of complete idiots amused me for some reason. Uh, I think my favorite might have been Electra, just because of her interactions usually ended with her electrocuting someone. It's, again, a very anime kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, Casey, what were your uh, favorites of yours? Um, I liked Korra. I mean, it, uh, what I found is I used a lot of blades that were healers. <laughs> I guess maybe I just like never really wanted to feel, you know, like I hate when you're in a battle and you just have no good way of regaining health, you know. So I guess I generally gravitated to using those those healer blades to sort of just always have potions lying around or you know the ability to sort of get a quick heal up. Mm. Of course, like I said, Nia was, you know, became one of my favorite blades, uh, you know, obviously towards the latter half of the game. Um, and then, you know, of course, you got Mithra and Pyra, which they're just absolute wrecking crews. Yeah, if you like healing, Nia's got you covered. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, once I got her, like I said, it, it was, like you said, easy peasy. Greg, uh, any any fans? Well, yeah, probably my favourite blade probably would be Dromark. Um, basically, if you have a cute character with a serious voice, yes, you've you've done it. That's it. You've won me. If if you if anybody remembers Teddy from AI, yes, like that. That's ba- yeah, that that kind of character every time. That's going to be my favourite. It's just some sort of hack for my brain of just like, oh, it's so cute. I, <laughs> I mean, they also they wrote that up pretty well too because he kind of he kind of lives that ethos. Oh, he do, you know, he's, he's so he's so kind of chivalrous and serious and all that, but you know, he's this giant sort of cuddly tiger. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it's very fun, and, and that's the I just probably yeah for that reason I played a lot as Nia, just riding around on a tiger. I mean, what if you're going to be doing all this walking? Yeah, screw that, ride around on a tiger. So, so was your favorite cut scene when uh, the, when Dromark had the little sleeping cap on? Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. the, the 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 double sort of for, for each ear sleeping yes. cap. 
No, exactly. So, and and the thing is, I mean, I did from from a functional point of view, I like being having Nia as the first in the order because. Yeah, I was just like, well, I want to be controlling the healing. I don't want to leave it to the kind of AI, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. So I, I, I did a lot of that. Um, and then also, you know, it was a drone mark would do a lot of healing, but then I would sort of have uh, an attack, uh, you know, at least one attack kind of uh, blade that I could switch to, um, you know, to, to sort of pile in on the damage or help the combos and all that. But that's for the, the combat part of the discussion. Yeah, I was gonna say I did something similar, but I still used Rex. But we'll, like I say, we'll save that for for a little later. Yeah, I, I pretty much used all, like I only missed two or three blades total. I pretty much used all of them to complete their quest lines. So they're they're most of them are pretty good. Like most of them are pretty well written and are pretty fun. There's a handful that are like, yeah, the one that's a dragon is not that not that interesting. Wolfric. Uh, no, the other the one. Yeah, he, he's a he's a beast, isn't he, Wolfric? Yeah, Harold. It's just it's just a woman. Also, is a dragon at the same time. I guess. <laughs> I don't know. See, I was gonna say. Um, I thought uh, Wolfric was cool because one of his quests early on, you know, he just everyone's afraid of him because he's so petrifying, you know. But really, he just wants people to be able to talk to him without running away screaming. Yeah, it's th- there's there's a. They had fun with with the the blades. I think is probably the best way to describe it. Like I know I know a lot of the blades were drawn by outside artists, and like there there are situations where I'm looking at a blade, I'm like, I know exactly who drew this. <laughs> I know exactly who drew this. Yeah, I mean, I guess the thing is that they, you know, in terms of narrative, there, you know, these are you know a different kind of being from everybody else. So it's kind of like makes sense in some way that they'd be more disparate. That they, yeah, because they're kind of more creatures of imagination than right. the people, um, you know. But I don't know. I, I, I kind of some of them are not quite so. I, I would have liked a little bit more distinction. But then at the same time, I don't think you can make them that distinct because you have got these hybrid characters, which is which we already talked about the whole flesh eater blade eater thing. Yeah, so. are we just going to assume that the only flesh the only flesh eaters are the blades that happen to look human? Like, <laughs> it's kind of weird since the majority of them look like nightmares, but no, only the only the human-y looking ones fleshy, I guess. So if, if you know everyone who drew everyone, who who would have drawn uh, Newt? Uh, it's not necessarily that I know the artist, but like, like I'll be like, oh, I've seen you, I've seen your art before. Like there, there were a few where I'm like, oh, you're the person who drew this show. You're the person who drew something else. Uh, Newt, I thought was some was like um, I'm trying to remember what that fighting game is. Skull, like Newt, I thought of Skullgirls. To be honest, is like what, what on God's name are you? <laughs> Those uh, big old arms. Yeah, I was getting used to kind of the way that they were going with the blades, but I was still taken back a little bit when Newt came out. Yeah, Newt's Newt special. It's a shame that arms is done with the DLC. There you go. Let's keep, keep in mind, those aren't Newt's arms. Those are interdimensional arms Newt is pulling from a portal. <laughs> yeah. In her, in her military, I'm going to call it uniform, but not really much else. It's mostly just a hat. Um, it covers her shoulders pretty good. No, those are just the big arms that are covering her shoulders. <laughs> Newt, Newt, Newt's is a, is a nightmare. It's probably, like, watching Newt in battle is, is truly the nightmare. I, I think this is the perfect note to take a break and come back and discuss uh, the many, many combat mechanics that have to be mastered in Xenoblade 2.
So just before we get back into talking about Xenoblade 2, uh, we're just going to have a, a quick discussion to see what everybody's brew is tonight, since we, we are technically in a, in a pub. I know, I know I'm having a beer, and I know James is having a beer, so how about, James, you tell us, uh, what do you uh, have? This, this is a, uh, a Bell's American IPA, which means I don't like it. I don't know why I bought an IPA, but I did, and I've got them, so now I have to drink it. Mm. It, it, is, it, is, it is the hoppiest thing. It, basically, I'm just chewing on hop at this point. It's, it's unpleasant, to say the least. But i got to get through <laughs> it, because otherwise I won't get to buy beer I actually want to drink. And Casey, uh, how about you? Well, uh, as you know, I'm the designated driver tonight, so I've got my uh, numerous bottles of Aquafina. I was uh, ill-prepared for tonight. Oh, this is delicious. Oh, this is fantastic. Oh, Jesus I'm Christ. having a much better time with, uh, than James, as you can tell. Oh no! I dropped the beer and I've spilled it into the sink. What a shame! <laughs> God, this is this is not good. How did his brethren get in the sink too? Well, Greg is Greg is uh, on the right continent for beer, but uh, well, I just something caffeinated. You know, I mean, uh, is is the main thing for me, isn't it? <laughs> um, it certainly seems like the uh, the 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 denizens of uh, the Argentum Trade Guild are pretty well caffeinated as themselves as well. Can 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 I have a brief aside for a second? Did, how many of y'all finished the pirate quest? The uh, the Nupon pirate quest. Is this with the doubloons? The de, uh n- yeah yes, it's the one that lets you into the the shrine. Yeah, I and think I've got about half of those doubloons. Yeah, I yeah. think I've, I'm in, I've gone in the shrine. I've seen the statue. And I was yes. supposed to go look for the eyes or something, and that's where. Oh, I okay, of... yeah, 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 yeah. So there's, there's the, not that one, but the one that leads you to that one. There's the one that gives you like the Napon history from this guy. That explains why the Napon are the way they are. Oh my god, I'm, I might be the only person who managed to see this. <laughs> I don't remember. Dude. <laughs> the, uh, the, I remember this quest took for for goddamn ever. Um, but essentially, it's like to unravel the secret of the Napon. Um, and the, the secret is they talk that way as an act because it makes humans think they're cute and then they can steal from them is basically the <laughs> rundown of what this is. So everything we know about Napon is a lie. Yeah, I think, I think that must be the uncover the truth one. Is it? Yeah. Is that, is that a quest? Yeah, like yeah, you have to go. F- yeah. That's still on my to do list. It's uh, a yeah. brutal quest, too. It takes forever. I've done a lot. I've done a lot of things associated with that quest, but it's not over yet. Uh, so, but that's the punchline, basically. It's a quest. Yeah. Uh, there's more to it than that, but yeah. It, that, I mean, that's... it's. To be fair, on that subject, there's uh, there are some scenes. Uh, where there's too many characters speaking in a silly fashion. <laughs> I don't mind a little bit of silly talk, but when it gets like compact with like multiple Nopon and multiple, um, you know, artificial blades that also speak that way, yes, it's a bit much. Okay. A Nopon <laughs> argument is the worst when you just hear them <laughs> yeah. yelling at each other in nonsense speak. The, the I'm pro Nopon. Yeah, the I like the fact that they have. In order to get their their crushy crushiness up enough, as as Torah describes it, they have programmed the artificial blades to talk like them, and that means you have Poppy also talking like she's an idiot, which which with normal Poppy is fine because you're like, well, she's just a cute little girl. It's fine, you know, she's a kid. With adult Poppy, who talks in this really r- robotic, cool, and collected voice, but also talks like an idiot because she's she's talking like a nupon, it just gets weird. Um, yeah, I don't, 
the fact that it turns out the entire Napon speak is a ruse is really upsetting to me personally. Like, <laughs> you mean you? I've had to put up with you assholes for three games, and it's a ruse. Yeah, it was all bullshit. I've had the thing is, you. isn't that? Is I think I've really read somewhere that the Napon speak is kind of uh, more severe in the localization. Uh, probably. Yeah, I don't think they they quite as sound like they've been hit over the head as many times <laughs> in Japan or something. So, yeah, I, I wonder how that factors into the right how they kind of treated that quest. Well, it's been getting worse too because I mean, um, Ricky Ricky was bad, but like he wasn't this bad. Xenoblade Xenoblade X, it was like maybe they're the only creatures who aren't being impacted by the magic ability to translate everyone else's speech. Maybe they're just actually having to learn it. But by Xenoblade 2, it was just like, nope, this is this is too much. Like you're just making up words now. I can't I can't deal with this shit. And I, th- I think maybe hearing it come from a non-Napon was probably the breaking point. Like once Yeah, and, and, and like you said, the arguments or conversations or whatever. Like when it's one guy, it's one thing, but But when it's like Tatazao and uh Tora and the two the two artificial blades and they're arguing about what what poppy QT pie should be wearing and they're using oh. they're using weird phrases they've made up to indicate what I assume is sexiness, but it's not immediately clear. Um I just wanna die. Like I just want it to a little too st- much no pun for James. I want it to stop. And I don't I don't know what needs to happen for it to stop. Does that mean that Malos has to win? Okay. You know what? I'm down for this. This this world deserves this end that you are putting together because of these Napon. Well, any any satisfaction to see uh, Ben uh, sentenced to life to run in a treadmill inside the uh... yeah the hamster wheel? <laughs> <laughs> like uh, that is the most that is the, what's worse is when you get his father because I don't know if you've run that quest and he joins him in the hamster wheel and then they start to enjoy it. Yeah, <laughs> I love that where he's like, "Oh, it's great exercise." <laughs> like I kind of <laughs> like this after all. This is good exercise. Or this good exercise, banner like. It's like, god damn it! The fact that Argentum is entirely powered by prisoners running in a hamster wheel. It's like, what is wrong with this game world? Amazing. God, the Nupon are the, the single unifying force in the Xenoblade franchise, and it is completely for ill. Well, on that note. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, get the no pawn hate out of the way. Yeah, that's right. Well, it's, not, uh, it's not hate; it's frustration. <laughs> you were like two Xenoblades away from the main character being a no pawn. Oh, I can't wait. And that's the P- point people... where, like, I'm gonna insist I get to review that game and just go like, no, zero out of ten, too much. But what happens if that's what finally turns you, and you you finally see the greatness behind the no pawn? What if they have an entire Nupon party and no sentence in the entire game is conjugated correctly? <laughs> the entire script is what misconjugated. What if they make the, uh, the main villain the Nupon? I, I mean, they kind of... Well, to be fair, that would, requ- that would require a degree of planning that the Nupon have not shown themselves capable of doing. <laughs> I don't, the idea that they run Argentum is too much for me. I'm like, you people are barely capable of doing anything you can't speak well and banna <laughs> seems to have a ton of money to throw around he did i don't know banna's banna's the idea of some good deals you know yeah i don't know it's, the napon sure are them we'll move on to uh combat mechanics we were talking about some battle much like the other xenoblade games basically you 
you don't control the physical attack. The characters, once they're sort of in range, do the attack. Um, this game's a little bit different how that works, but largely it's just they, they stand there and they grind on somebody by attacking them physically. And they're charging up meters. Um, the Xenoblade games are full of meters. Meters everywhere. Like, I think Xenoblade 2 has five meters. It's like DBZ fighters at this point. It's just meters everywhere. You're charging them up. You're trying to get the skills. And those skills are kind of ca- categorized as arts. And so, basically, you have... Arts are essentially the skills that the, the blades can use once they've been charged up. So, for example, uh, you know, if you have like a, a fire blade, they might have a skill where they, they put a big arc of fire that hits all the enemies out there. And each individual art, you can have three active at any moment on, on a blade. I think, I think each blade has four, maybe it's five, and you, you pick from the list and put them on there. Um, and you can level them up with experience. But each, each art um, has its own meter. And as you attack physically, that meter fills up. And once it's filled, you can then pop that skill, and then the meter starts to reset. Uh, those are categorized as, your, as your, your blade arts. And you can chain those together with physical attacks to charge up the larger meter, which is the big one, which I can't remember what that meter is called, but that's what the fourth button is dedicated for, the fourth face button. And that pops their specials, which we'll get to in a minute, I, su- I suspect. But essentially, you're trying to combo things together by basically it's usually just timing and and planning ahead so right when the attack the physical attack that you're using lands at the end of a chain it's even more effective but right after any physical attack lands if you pop a blade art that triggers a combo and you get more to your meter for your special you still get some to your meter for your special for any blade art but you get a bonus if you do it as part of a combo and then if you chain more blade arts out on top of that you get to like the first blade art ends you fire the second blade art at the exact right moment you get even more special to your or more extra meter to your combo and you just keep doing that until your combo is filled and you can pop your your special skill sorry just to interrupt you for a second i, I was going to ask you about one of uh, one of the nwr staff uh, justin uh, berube had pointed out uh, a trick in order to get the arts charged up quicker okay oh my goodness yeah so basically what he did so yeah like you were saying the the driver has an auto attack and it's like in threes like there's like the first hit and then the second hits a little bit stronger and the third hits even a little bit stronger. And what he found was is that there was a speed at which those three hits were done. But instead of allowing the driver to, to do that three hit auto attack, what he would do is he'd let the first, the first like you'd hit once. You kind of just tap the, the left Joy-Con just enough to move the character. Yeah. But it would reset back to, the, to that initial quick hit at the start. So basically what you're doing is is you were doing a weaker attack multiple times. Yes, because the, there's a bigger swing on each one of the attacks. That's right. So that so it would build up the the blade art quicker. The other way to do that, the other way to do that though is that when you pop a blade because you have three blades as well, three blades with three three arts. Uh, when you change blades, they come out fully charged. And mm-hmm. so what you can and once you change off of a blade, they have a meter to come back in because this game is just Full of meters. But that one's not, not tied to attacks. It just fills up with time. And how long it takes is a, is a, a function of how good your relationship is with them. Um, and so my core, my core story party, it's maxed out. So it's really fast. And so at that point, the fastest way to get your specials is basically you just cycle through. And by the time you get through the, the, the third one, the first one's ready to go again. And so it's just it's constant arts. Uh, it was also a good way to build up the uh, the meter 
the other meter, the special meter, because the special meter moves between... It's attached to the driver, not to the blade. So if you change blades, you keep the special meter. So you can use one, one blade to try to drive it up really fast to, to level three and then pop your special and then do it again to pop the second round of the special. And in theory, you can get all the specials off with one driver if you're really, really good at it. But that's really difficult. And if, if that wasn't confusing enough, on top of that, each like some of the arts had effects. Yes. So, so that the break, the, the break, topple, launch, smash. Yeah, so there are status effects that you can assign to, to enemies, um, and certain arts trigger those effects. Sometimes they just kind of happen naturally. And one can sort of parlay into the other with the right, with the right skill. So break is essentially like a stagger. It doesn't, it doesn't really affect their behavior that much, but there's a meter. Once well, Again, there are meters. <laughs> once one of these status effects pops in and that meter shows up on the screen and it's counting down, and once it hits zero or once the bar is completely gone, the status effect goes away. But break can then be turned into a topple if you have skills like uh, Rex's anchor shot where he fires off his stupid grappling hook thing on his wrist that should dislocate his shoulder every time he uses it. And um, that triggers a topple, which is essentially the enemy can't move for a certain amount of time. The meter goes a lot faster on topple than on break, but they're now unable to move. From break, there are skills, and I can't remember the name of one right off. Uh, that can, uh, the next one is launch, so... Yeah, there's, yeah. there's a skills that can trigger break into launch, or topple into launch, which puts them up into the air. And then there's another skill that can trigger them into smash, which is slap them out of the air and do a tremendous amount of damage. Now, I know, uh, I know, Rocks um, Scythe did the smash. Yeah, because I specifically uh, had Rock for that. Yeah, so launch is my favorite because it just shoots mm-hmm. the enemy's character model into the air and spins them around head over heels. Really and fast. they take an absolute ton of damage when they're launched too. Yep. Like if you. Um, there were times, again, we're getting into specials in a second, but, like, when you busted a special or a chain attack when they were toppled, or when they were launched, oh, like, yeah. bosses would just melt. Um, yeah, I mean, I it, had It was a, incredible. I had a special that, that, or a chain attack that ended up running well over a million damage because of stuff like that. Like, just an obscene number. T- uh, topple was my favorite because uh, if you were fighting one of the tyrants in a location... Like, there was a couple of the flying tyrants. There's one in particular that was very tough. It was on the... I don't remember. It was in the cave on the way to, like, the Egypt, the third Aegis sword. And there was, like, the two whale creatures. Yes. And what you... And they were, they were so tough until I realized that if you toppled them off the map, like, you know, yes. you were on the path. If you toppled them and they missed the, the thing that you were standing on and they just went into the abyss, it was an, it was an auto kill. Yeah, I had I had something similar on the Cliffs of Mortha. Like I would just I killed all the all the tyrants there flying. I killed all of them by toppling them into the abyss. Yeah, but but the thing is, you don't get the items. No, which is, which sucks because they went into the cliff as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there there's a so launch looks hilarious against the giant T Rex thing on <laughs> um on Gormont. Yeah, where um, gravity has no meaning. Yeah, and it spins really fast too. So it looks like it looks like it's in a centrifuge. It's the best, but I, you know, running through that whole combo gets you a bonus too. So if you go from from break, uh, break, topple, launch, smash, you get like an extra bonus too. Like there's all kinds of stuff in this in this game's combat system. Um, the arts themselves have status effects, so you can do like um, if you pair that with a combo, you might get like 
topple burn or whatever. Like, it's it's ridiculous. And all those things are stacked up, and if you fire certain specials, you can reset their topple meter or their break meter or whatever. Yeah, it's... And here's the thing. Here's the thing. I'm gonna let you in on a secret. Xenoblade 2's combat system is simplified. Like, that, they themselves say it's simplified from the previous games, and they're right. Um, because in the other games, you had five skills to pick from. In Xenoblade 1, you had a big, chain, a big block of skills you could choose, and they have all kinds of effects. And you can give kind of, like, guidance advice to your allies. Whereas this game, you really can't do anything. They just, they just do them. And you could do, like, that weird... The chain attack in Xenoblade requires you really know what your allies have and, like, make sure you cue them up in certain ways to get the chain to keep going. Xenoblade X is the things you can do in that combat system utterly break that game. There are skills and stats you can chain together in such a way that you shatter that game's gameplay and can just like one shot the bosses that were only available in the online mode. This one is less less prone to that kind of crazy exploitation and requires you have less direct control over your allies. Like they kind of just handle their business, but it's still complicated like there's still a lot going on um and the blade the blade arts are really just sort of like a step two into the final step where things really go off the deep end yeah i was going to touch on a little bit early on when you don't have three drivers um and how the combat sort of works then as uh james said of course later on you eventually have the three different blades that you can sort of switch on the fly like you said there is a little bit of a cooldown before you could bring out a blade you just had but it was interesting in the beginning of the game, and, you know, of course, especially with a game that's you're going to play for probably over 100 hours, you know, 10 hours doesn't really seem like a lot, you know, in the grand scheme of things. But for that first 10 hours or so, and, and I'm just pulling that number, I mean, it might be a little more what, or less. Whatever it takes. Yeah, you don't have those three uh, dry, uh, blades yet, so, you know, the whole battle system is a little bit slower in the beginning of the game because it's, you know, the recharge time on your arts are generally they're the same you know so you're just down a full driver and three abilities so that's why i know in the beginning of the game i've seen people sort of complain like yeah these battles are taking forever you know it's like i'm fighting just a random enemy on the side of the road and it's taken me 10 minutes to do so did you guys think that was a little strange or a, you know obviously once you get to that three blade you know, it sort of opens up and it feels like obviously that's how the game was designed to be played with, you know. But early on, it's it, just a slower pace. No, I thought so. And I mean, because the thing is, I didn't get to the point where I was doing, you know, the, the you know, really the, the it's kind of, yeah, break and topple, but I didn't really get to kind of regularly launching enemies for quite some time. And I get you know you're less likely to when you haven't got the full array of, of of drivers and blades yet. So I guess that's some of the reason is it's kind of setting you up for you know you there's a feeling of empowerment once you do have the you know, all the things you need to master you know kind of the combos and the chain attacks and everything. But um, yeah, it it it, um, it did end up being a bit uh, kind of. Uh, sluggish in the early going but then also as i mentioned when i spoke about there on rfn i went through the phase where i kind of did a bunch of side stuff in portable play and that kind of brought an end to that too because i got relatively over leveled compared to where i was before yeah. so the, it kind of um 
yeah, the, the, there was definitely a sort of fair amount of the game where I felt that was true, but then it kind of it passed. Like you said, yeah, I guess it sort of makes you feel like a badass once you start pulling off those combos. Um, like you said, I don't know if I ever even got a, a all the way through a smash. Um, I know, you know, I I got that launch probably towards the second half of the game, and that was a big game changer just because of how much damage you can inflict when they're in launch status. It, it's ridiculous, but uh, I don't know. I I just I like the progression. Once you did get to that part, I I, I felt like this battle system was just it was a lot to take in you know of, of like james said with all the different gauges and meters and stuff but sort of once you finally like have that aha moment where you feel like you have it in your grasp it, it just feels really fluid and and feels really good i know uh, a lot of people at like a few people at nwr i know we were kind of losing them in in that first like 10 to 15 hours and having played it a second time now like I can really pinpoint that moment of when everything just comes together, which is uh, at the beginning, I believe it's chapter four, like after that fight with uh, Malos and Echos, where now you have the three bla- the, the three drivers, you can do combos. That was where it's like, okay, now this game is fun now because I can actually do everything that I was meant to be able to do. For me, it's it's the breakout. Um, it's the, the breakout of the the ship in in Gormont. So you have your first for the first moment you have three blades or three three drivers because you get you get Nia lose Torah or you you get Nia then you lose Nia get Torah then you rescue Nia and you have Nia and Torah and granted Torah only has one blade at this point but like I don't think I could have handled at that point having multiple poppies talking but um <laughs> You know, you have already had the opportunity to to get your first blade to like uh, open a core crystal, uh, because Rex basically just takes a core crystal from a military thing at some point. I don't I don't understand it, even though they're wanted. He just walks up and takes. Was well, like, yeah, I'll do it. There, I got, I, got <laughs> you, I got a blade. And you can even talk to the guy while you're ta- like, you can. He's standing yeah. beside it. You talk to him. You're like, no, nah, I'll just take this, and then you just walk. And he's away. like, he's like, yeah, that's cool. Whatever. Yeah. Hey, hey, aren't you that wanted kid? Nope. Okay, cool. Good, good talk. Don't hurt yourself. Uh, I already had uh, two blades on Rex and another blade on Nia. So, like, they, they each had their, their base blade and another blade. So, like, I was already kind of running that that feeling. And I got the I had now had a proper healer, a proper attacker, and a proper tank. And I got to see, okay, Tora is taking the damage. Nia is keeping him alive. And Rex is, is dealing damage. And I could see the lines start to come together. And I'm like, ah, I get where this game is going now. So to me, by the time I got to that fight against Torna, I was already hunting down tyrants. So that first real tyrant fight where I thought I had a chance, everybody had a, a full complement of blades, except for Tora, obviously. Um, and I had a plan, and I was chaining stuff together. That basically comes as soon as you're willing to find it once you've got the full party. But it does take a while. Because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I was out doing quests and stuff and finding core crystals and then popping them immediately until the point where now I have, I have the max number of base core crystals you can have. Cause I'm just like, I don't want any more. I'm just going to get more generic blades. I don't want more generic blades, more dog blades. Uh, but oh, the, is there anything worse than popping a, a crystal and just getting a generic blade? Yes. Pop, popping a, uh, 
the rarest level of core crystal and getting a generic blade. <laughs> That's the worse. Le- the legendary? Yeah, this is a legendary. Oh, it's a two-star dog. Yeah, yeah, real legendary. Thanks. Or well, blowing, legend- blowing five boosters on a rare and getting absolutely nothing. A oh, legendary so- piece of crap. See, boosters, I don't even care because um, I got I did a lot of a lot of mining with Rex, so I constantly was popping blades just to clear out boosters. He's like, "Oh, you can't turn this in. You've got too many boosters." I'm like, "Well, okay, I'll just pop some blades," and then I get a blade and go like, "Hey, it's good to meet you. You're never getting in the party, and you're dead." It's like you you might get sent on some missions. You're never getting in the party. Oh, uh, side note: the uh, update that's coming out next week gives the option to skip the blade resonance altogether. Oh my god! It's three months too late. What? Wait, wasn't didn't they do that in the last update? It took away the so you could so what would happen is you had to watch the the driver hold the core crystal and then it does oh. its three little like boom boom boom. Yeah, and then you could skip the little cutscene, but now you can skip all of it. Oh, okay. Yeah, I I've watched that cutscene at uh, least a hundred times. The there worst. was a point when I had like ninety common core crystals, and I was like, "All right, let me put on the TV show or something." And I guess I'm just gonna be opening crystals tonight. And I got like three rare blades. <laughs> it's like oh, at a ninety. Oh. Yeah, I haven't even done that. I I basically just said like, you know, I'm good. But anyway, that was I. That's I think I just I described the arch system well enough, that we went way afield. <laughs> Sorry. How about uh, <laughs> if Greg wants to take uh, discuss uh, the how the orbs work, the specials? Yeah, like so I think the the biggest thing, and this is something that kind of uh, is a. a put in that kind of phase where the battle system's kind of coming together for you is is about the fact that they kind of diminish uh you get these uh you know, specials that um you can chain together in a chain attack uh if they are in ascending level so you can use you know, a level three one if the meters are built up enough straight off the bat but it's you know essentially only counts as like a level one and right. then and then it's got a it's got to at least be a two and then at least a three and then it kicks into the chain attack phase. Um, you know, and whatever element that you finish with, you know, the element being contingent on the, uh, the blade that's, uh, you're performing the special, um, that, that then you have this orb, uh, you know, is left on the, uh, the, the recipient of the damage. It took me forever to figure out what the fuck those orbs were. Well, Me yeah, too. it's it. I mean, it's it clearly. I feel like it's it's trying to get you in that early phase where it's like you might have. Certainly, I did. I kind of had a a a, a pathway that seemed to keep kind of opening up. You know, like I would tend to do a, a water attack early because you were running um, as near because I was running as near, and then I think it was Earth uh, that would follow next from um from Torah from Torah. And then wind to finish because you had rock because um, you had rock on Rex. Yeah, I'd add rock and, and another wind. For some reason, I had lots of wind. <laughs> so I, I can answer that, and I'll answer it in a minute. So why don't you go ahead and finish? Yeah, uh, but uh, so yeah, that that was kind of the early go, and that was normally what would happen. But of course, what the the purpose of the orb is once the orb is there, then you know if you're going to finish the same sort of a t- chain of attacks in the same way, then that orb essentially means that it won't do as much damage as it did before, and and therefore it's trying to encourage you to get 
you know, to, to pop blades if you've got cores that you haven't used yet, or you know, to kind of switch characters more, switch blades, or whatever it is, trying to get you to open up and use more different combinations of attacks so that you, you know, kind of not getting stuck in a rut just doing the same thing over again and kind of and then you know with the elemental stuff there's some uh you know enemies you know that you're going to want to use particular kind of elemental attacks anyway but just kind of, i feel like kind of make the the battles feel more dynamic now of course as the game would go on i think you'd naturally just you know, open up a lot more anyway um, because you're going to get so many more blades and you get more characters and, and everything kind of just opens up. But I, I think it's kind of prodding you towards that place a little bit sooner. Not necessarily in the most transparent way. Um, you know, <laughs> it could be. <laughs> it's a bit opaque, really. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the other part of it then, though, is that once an orb is in place, you can shatter it as part of a, a chain attack um, yeah. that will enable you to pr continue the chain attack and really start to rack up the damage. Um, and that is made quicker if you uh, can go with the opposing element because they're in was it three pairs, right? right? Uh, uh, you know, of opposing elements. So it's not a, a sort of um, intransitive cycle like a Pokemon type of thing. It's just pairs. Um, but uh, so, you know, that that again, once you could start to, you know, open up the number of blades you got, the number of different element combinations and all that kind of thing. And of course, you know, the, you can the the uh, the AIs kind of cooperating and all that kind of thing where they go into the right one at the right time in some cases. Uh, then you you can if you really want to do a ton of damage at once, you kind of wait. You so you hit them with multiple chain attacks of different that, types, so that you end up with them having multiple orbs around them that you can then shatter. Uh, in the same chain attack to keep it going and going and going and then have that damage just just really start to... I suppose this is what you were talking about when you was on about a million or whatever. Yeah, oh uh, yeah. It, it really gets sort of dizzyingly high and all of a sudden the battle that you know could seem like well, you know, this, this could be going on for a very long time comes to a head uh, rather more quickly. Now, uh, one thing that I very rarely did was preserve the chain attack long enough that that final sort of meter, um, I, I forget what it was called, this sort of yellow one in the top left corner that, yeah, of the display. It's, a, it's another bar up the top left. Yeah, I very seldom max that out all the way because you do need to be shattering quite a succession of orbs. Well, at least in my experience, I, I by no means mastered. Can, can the you explain system. what that does? Because I think I only did it once. Yeah, I did it once when it didn't. It, 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 I was expecting possibly the screen to explode like i wasn't I, I think my expectations were a bit out of whack but yeah it was it was an anti-climax to be honest yeah so what would it do because like i i realized like oh my god i'm gonna fill this thing this time and then i was like wait what happened did, did anything happen i'm confused um because i killed them right when i shattered the last crystal so like i basically lost the ability to continue because I did a million damage. Like at some point, it was just like, well, this is I, I've reached a lunacy number, so it's irrelevant. Yeah, I, I think my biggest attack was I got through the like I broke two crystals, so I, you know I had three goes of it on the chain attack, and I think they were um, they were launched. So it was like 
I got like a million and a half. It, it was, <laughs> I was like, oh my God, I, I took a screenshot. I was like, this is unbelievable. I was like, finally. <laughs> so it's called the party gauge. The party gauge is the one that lets you fire the chain attack. Yeah, that's in the top oh, left. Oh, the three, yeah, the top left is the three bars and you have to have them filled to do the, that. Yeah, yeah that's it. And, and that's what's used for reviving teammates and all that. that yes. That's yeah. the blue. This is only when you're during a chain attack situation, uh, you know, after the, uh, yeah, once you've triggered the third special, that this bar that I'm talking about. Gets. Yeah, yeah, I know. I just, I'm trying to remember what it's called so I can figure out what the hell it means. Yeah, my uh, my record in in that combo uh, was one point eight million. Um, <laughs> I had uh, uh, it was just the perfect storm. I had three orbs. Uh, I had them launched, and I had Pyra in uh, like the her special form. Yeah, the special like the the pneumonia or whatever other name is Numa 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 in her Numa form. Oh yeah, that that's like a real name, I guess, like the 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 true name of that. yes, yeah, Aegis or whatever. Her yeah. original name, yeah. So when she was in that, like, you know, unfair space, damage. Yeah, yeah. The, the spaceman suit. Uh, yeah, like it, the the damage was just get, like they were just shattering. Like I went, I went, and it was funny too because I'm pretty sure by the end of the first orb, I had actually gone into overkill already. And yeah, so I was yeah. yeah. So it was all it was all just gravy after that. But I just remembered like, okay, I can keep using her. I can keep using her, and then it just went. Just watched it, and, and I should have took a screen. I think I might have taken a screenshot, but I just couldn't believe him. Like one point eight, holy moly! There was no way he was walking away from that one. Yeah. So I, I have I have found a guy that explains what the hell is going on with that. Um. It's not clear how many of the gems you need to burst to reach it. Uh, it may depend on how much damage you do. But if you fill up that bar, you get what's called a full burst. Full, which, but that's it. That's the term I couldn't quite which get. Just, which just deals a bunch of damage. Which is and, anticlimactic in the extreme. Yes, it, it was anticlimactic, definitely. Because, again, I think probably I'd already killed the damn thing. Anyway. <laughs> well, that's, and it's funny, too, because like, we might have done it and not even known well, I was going to say, if if that's any hint of how uh, convoluted the battle system can be, that we're learning new things after all of us have played this yeah, game for I, I, uh, you know, near 100 yeah. hours, if not I didn't more. figure out how the gems work until Greg told me before an RFN recording, and I was like 20 hours ahead of him at that point. I'm like, yeah. where the fuck do they come from? And like, what do they mean? He's like, oh, well, did they you get the shop through X because by doing the chain attacks, the chain attack combos. I'm like, oh, god damn it, that's what they are? God, I I definitely had to take a a look at a a nice guide online. Uh, If yeah, I mean, I I feel like most people listening to this, especially at this point, have probably played it. Uh, But if not, definitely a guide, right? Like, yeah, this it helps immensely. It's not even funny. This game tutorializes a lot, but there's so much, and it just tells you one time, and it seems, oh, you figured it out, right? Oh, you Mm -hmm. haven't. Well, I'm not gonna put it anywhere where you can find it. So. Well, sorry. E- even when you're told how to do it, I I still felt like I had to do it myself a few times before. Is it really stuff like that still available, like with those information brokers in the towns, though? I mean, cause yes, I, I didn't end you up can, kind of buying that many of those. tutorials. It's <laughs> <That's laughs> so strange, isn't it? But yeah. So uh, Rex Rex owns all the stores in in Allrest, 
Remirax does? Oh, all <laughs> yes. He, he owns every single store. So I wanted to see if I could buy the information broker. So I went and bought all their info. And no, you can't buy the information broker. But. <laughs> you can't control the media is what you said. <laughs> I got I got a ra- Rupert Murdoch disagrees. I got a I got a random tutorial for something that I didn't understand. 140 hours according to the game into the gameplay because Rex was just buying. I'm like, oh, that's how that works. Okay, thanks, game. Thanks for hiding it behind a freaking information broker. And he was from Indolf's. He was a refugee in Argentum. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> and he's Fuck got all you. the information you need. I'm like, I could have used that a hundred hours ago. <laughs> Damn it. Well, and if, if your mind hasn't been blown by the million meters and combat mechanics, then uh, trying to get, wrap your head around some of the infinity trees is pretty tricky too. Oh, God. Yeah, um, I actually thought, you know, again, sort of once you sort of look at it a few times and see what's up. I thought they actually worked really well, um, especially how they were laid out. So, you know, for each um, type of character, so you got your drivers and your blades, they each have affinity trees. And for the driver, completing quests um, just sort of earns you points. And then you could sort of go into your affinity tree, and it's sort of laid out where um, it's sort of, it's like a half circle around your character's portrait working its way out in rings. So the first one, you know, they're generally sort of cheaper and, you know, smaller uh, abilities. And then you branch your way out uh, after you spend a couple and unlock on each sort of uh, tier. It unlocks further and further and further. So for each of the characters, each of your uh, drivers, you go in there and they've got um, abilities, you know, like, oh, it adds X amount of agility or you gain, you know, X amount of health kind of thing. But then as you work your way out, um, it gets, you know, more useful uh, skills. But then the blades themselves also have these trees, but the progression works a little bit different for them. Uh, You don't, you know, earn points to spend, but instead uh, each different skill is um, related to a specific task you need to go out into the world and do. You know, sometimes it's um, hold the favorite item in your pouch uh and the pouch is sort of like uh time-based little buffs you can eat little items that give your character buffs for a period of time and generally help in battle but uh, in this instance in the blade tree like i said it could be tied behind that or it could be tied behind going out and doing a specific quest in the world or it could even just be using a certain skill or item a certain amount of times and by doing that you want of this random enemy Yes, exactly. So it's sort of one of those you want to look at the tree and you'll be like, okay, these enemies, I can sort of find them there and you can go out and try and kill those and you unlock different uh, skills that way. So I thought it was sort of cool how they were a little different, same general idea, um, but some of these tasks, especially obviously with the blades I'm talking about, are just really, really difficult or time-consuming. We were talking a little bit before about Ursula, who is a blade and her uh, progression is tied heavily behind the Merc system, which is, uh, they're just mini quests that you send your blades that you're not using in your main party. Uh, you sort of assemble a team, and you just sort of send them out, and j- they're gone for... It's a clicker. They, they put a clicker in this game. Yeah, exactly. What it so is. it'll be, oh, 20 minutes, 40 minutes, they're out doing their thing, and you just sort of forget about them. But those are obviously very uh, time heavy not necessarily you doing anything per se 
to them, but you know you have to be playing the game. So I thought and it they're was gone interesting. from your party. That's the bigger issue is that you don't have them anymore. Those blades, yeah, they're yeah. out doing work, and they could be like three hours. Some of the later ones, you can you can influence the number down, but yeah, they could take a while. And as you said, Ursula's are the worst. Yeah, which is unfortunate because I was using her for quite a bit of time. And like you said, you don't really want to take her out of your party if you're actively using her, and then you know, so that sort of muddies things up. But now. I, this is, we're going to touch a little bit on the field skills, which to me is the biggest blemish on Xenoblade 2, um, in my opinion. You unlock these uh, generally, again, by going through the uh, affinity trees. You unlock field skills, um, some of the leap, you know, wind mastery, uh, no pond mastery, I think is one, or wisdom. There's all sorts of random things, and... When you're out on the field, you'll find these uh, areas that you can interact with, and you need the field skills to be able to do it. You might find a chest that needs lockpicking and two wisdom to be able to open it. And that seems fine, but what's annoying is in order for the skill to be active and be able to be used, they need to be in your actual party. So it's just a ton of menu diving and looking for the correct oh this blade i've never used before outside of sending on a merc mission has my thing now i need to bring him into my main party and it's just a juggling act and to to be honest it infuriated me like that was the i i could not stand it and some of these things are required to actually progress through the story and the game so i i don't know if that bothered you guys as much as it did to me but my goodness the other thing that bothered me was that i would get to a place that required, like you said, there'd be a chest and it would be like, okay, well, you have level one lock picking. You need to go find level two or do whatever task it takes to get level two lock picking. So then I would go do the task. It would say, you know, I, I did it. And then I'd go back to the chest. I'd try to use it. And then it would say, no, you don't have it. You oh, yeah. You don't have the level two lock picking. And then I'm sitting there like, no, I just spent a half an hour doing that stupid test or task or whatever it is that i was supposed to do i got it open my damn chest and you don't like you have to actually go to the dry or to the blade you have to look at the affinity tree uh, at that point <laughs> the skill will it's be like worst. oh here it is you can use it now then you have to leave the menu and then do it so you so when you see the little uh a box that comes up that says oh yeah you earned level two lock picking you haven't actually earned it until you activate it and and that yeah, it yeah. crazy. And it's just making a process that was already remarkably fiddly just that extra little bit fiddly. It's, it's, <laughs> that was that was that was my favorite part of the game was like you idiots designed it this way you did this on purpose you forced me to go so i would just periodically go into the blade list open up one of the skill trees and just R trigger through all of them until I saw everybody. And like almost always I would get at least two blades that just stopped me so they could show me a skill being put on the tree. I'm like, Oh my God. Yeah. It just doesn't make sense. I mean, to I, like, I thought the field um, skills were like a good, like I liked the idea, like, but I just wish if I had a blade that were, was able to do that, that it just automatically worked, you know? Like, I hated the fact that you had to well, so it go does, in and juggle. It does with the ones you sent on Merc skills. So Merc skills, actually, when you send a blade on a mercenary mission, it'll actually get skills that it says normally you have to do other stuff to get. Like, actually, it bypasses the requirements unless it's like a quest thing. 
eventually. It takes a little while, but um, like you can you can send them on there, and because it forces you to the tree immediately, those cash in right away. Because it actually mm-hmm. shows you the tree when it tells you what they got. But like, See, I, I was going to say, it didn't bother me too much. I mean, that was a little bit of a hassle to have to go and make sure like, oh, I've unlocked it, but now I need to view the once tree. Once I figured it out, it was, it? once I figured it out, it was fine. But until that point, it was infuriating. It was like, why is this skill not there? Yeah. The other part that bothered me was uh, the enemy names to me weren't memorable. So when the affinity tree says, okay, you have to kill five uh, Ignas or whatever they're called, I'm sitting there like, where were they? I don't know what the, like, you just threw a name and it just looks like a random collection of letters to me. Like, it, none of the names oh, yeah. really meant anything to me. I just Googled so those there boys. Like, well, that, yeah, that, it's unfortunate, that, but that's really like your only option is to Google it and find out, okay, where are these things located? Yeah, I mean that's that's what it came down to. You just had to Google it and go, okay, I need to know where this is, and then Google would go, oh, it's here, and you go, oh, okay, thanks, and then I'd go get it. And like, I, I know that sounds like a waste of time and and just like antithetical to what the game is about, but a lot of times it'd be like, oh, I've killed two, so I've already done this, I've already found them. Yeah, at some point I've crossed their path. Yeah, but like you said, yeah, they definitely don't stand out for their naming conventions. I might know what an Igna is, but I don't know which Igna I'm looking at. Yeah, because, like, to me, because, I, I mean, Final Fantasy is kind of my go-to RPG. And to me, like, the enemy names are memorable. Like, if I know what the Behemoths are, I know what the Ogres are. I don't know what a, a, a Archer Igna or Wall Igna, like, where the hell are those? Like, I don't, like, they don't, and then all the fish, like, I don't, I couldn't tell you any of the fish names. Um, like they're just not memorable to me. Yeah, I mean, and a lot of times it was just like this is this is the this is this region's version, and you may have multiple for the same area. So um, a lot of times, just that's that's why I just came down. To, I'm just going to Google this. I can't I can't be asked to figure this out. So let's just let's just let's just go look, um, and you'd see. Oh, it's it's this one in this lake somewhere, and you just go deal with it. And it sucks, but you know. A lot of these I just got naturally, and then it would be like, I need to progress this person's skill. Let's just go get it and find it and just deal with it, and we'll go from there. Well, and I think one of one of the blades, the the enemy was found in a tree in Gormot. Oh, that checks out. So you could just run around the field. You could kill a couple hundred enemies. You'd never find it until you actually went up to the tree fort and saw, oh, there they are. <laughs> oh, those ones. Yeah. 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 Correct. Ah. Uh... Fun times. Now, I guess uh, <clears throat> before we move on to any story stuff, uh, what were your guys' main party? Uh, I guess, obviously, it sort of probably shifted as you went, but what was your sort of end game three drivers and, and sort of, I mean, we can get into the blades, I guess, if we want to, but I'm more interested in who your three drivers were. Uh, I, I used everybody. Um, everybody had a role, and I would shift them around. I think at the end it was um, Rex, Rex, Zeke, Morag, but it could have very easily been Rex, Zeke, Tora, or Rex, Morag, Rex, Morag, Zeke, uh, or Rex, Morag, Tora. I was I was way over leveled because of all the quests I did. Um, so the boss, the final boss, just got punked. 
I mean, just absolutely dominated. And in fact, I went and beat the final boss later and beat it in, like, before he finished talking. So, like, it's... <laughs> yeah, it's, it was a joke. It, yeah, so, the uh, the party actually... I, I, I actually felt like there was good cause to shift people around, not just because I felt like it. Um, occasionally, I would go up against the tyrant where it's like, oh, I need two tanks. Because I need, I need them to alternate who's taking the beating, because this is really bad. Um, there's a quest on Gormot where you have to kill the big level 90 T-Rex. Or you could just convince it to leave, and that's not my style. He needed to die, and so I killed him. But, like, it was really hard to do. And so I ended up flipping him and, and like, really having to do the work to make it happen. You didn't get him drunk first? No. I just, I just fought him. And I, I killed him through having two distinct people tanking for me. And so they would basically, basically one would go down and I would pick them up and then the other would go down and I'd pick them up and I was just building meter fast enough that that was okay and I could do it. Mm -hmm. um, and Rex just didn't take any damage and with Nia, he just kept healing everybody. Mm. But yeah, I thought they did a, I thought they did a good job making everybody in the party useful. Mm -hmm. How about you, Greg? Yeah, I mean, I kind of fell into just a kind of a rut, really. The same thing happened with the original Xenoblade. I didn't experiment nearly as much as I could have done with characters like Dunban and uh, and stuff in that. And in this, really, once I got Morag and uh, and Morag and Bridget, that yeah, that, that that's a good sort of tanking option. That pretty much signaled the end of Tora's involvement. <laughs> because uh, I really did not. Uh, relish the thought of uh, doing all the, the rigmarole to kind of um, empower Poppy uh, with the, the, the mini game and all that kind of stuff so I was kind of quite happy to um, let somebody else take over you know, the, the tank responsibilities uh, for the most part and then as I continued with with Nia mostly being a healer but I did m most of the kind of switching um, to kind of relative to the, the opponent I was fighting, I kind of did with Nia in terms of, well, would I have maybe another another tank kind of um, uh, blade in there you know, for her to sort of pick up the slack sometimes if if uh, Morag's taking too much uh, damage or you know, would I have another healer in there to keep it you know, going even quicker, that kind of thing. So she was you know, really the uh, kind of the versatile one because I had the discretion there. Um, you know, and then yeah, Rex was in the party for doing damage, and that was generally the the formula for the whole game. It wasn't very imaginative. I don't imagine it was very efficient either, but uh, it generally worked. So it didn't. I didn't deviate. I was I was about the same. Uh, I generally stuck with uh, Rex, Nia, and Tora for I would say ninety percent of the game. And uh, I really only worked Zeke and Morag in under the false assumption that maybe at some point the game was going to restrict who I could use. So I should probably not ignore the entire, like, and just stick to three. And then it became apparent that wasn't going to be an issue. So I just, I pretty much stuck to uh, to those three. The only time uh, I re experimented a lot was uh, I had a bit of difficulty with the Jin and Malos battle uh, at the end of Moritha. Uh, where I kind of I went in with my regular team and just got smoked, like three three times in a row I think it was, and I thought um, maybe maybe I need a, a different combination here, and 
and I ended up screwing around a bit, but then I went ended up just going back to uh, my original three and and yeah, basically Rex the attacker, Nia the healer, Tora the tank, and and I got a, a lot of Tiger Tiger time in. They did make that easier to make advancing Poppy. Uh, they added an easy mode in one of the one of the first patches, which it sure is. It sure is an easy mode. My big question with that easy mode, and granted, I didn't do any research to really find out, but was the reward less for using nope. the easy not mode? That I per- not that I perceived. Yeah, because I was like, I figured there would be some sort of conceit no. for, for it being easier, but... It just seemed like they, they felt like they didn't want Poppy to have s- some skills locked behind Tiger Tiger. So they just said, okay, well, we'll, we'll if you put in the effort, we'll, we'll still let you in. I mean, you still got to do do some work. Yeah. No, I stuck with normal because grind didn't build his character. <laughs> you know what I did? I went to easy and then maxed out all three forms of uh, Poppy. And now I have I have the Poppy killing squad in the party. <laughs> the Poppy killing squad. Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like my party was somewhat unconventional because uh, I was rolling, obviously, your sort of standard Tora, Nia, Rex. Um, then Morag came into the picture and... I'm a, I'm a big fan. I like Morag a lot. So I was like, I need to get her into the party. But I also like Poppy and Tora. So I ended up actually removing Nia. And then I made... Rex was essentially my healer. Um, you know, I had Ursula. I had... I mean, obviously, you've got Pyra. And I'm blanking on um, one of the... Uh, I was using Rock for a while. But then I changed to um, Korra. That was it. The electric healer. And so I was rolling sort of Rex as my healer, then I had uh, Tor and Poppy as my tank, and then I made Morag uh, my sort of damage dealer. Um, obviously, obviously she had Bridget, who is the tank. So once I got Poppy QT, you know, in my mind, in a perfect world, I was like, well, when she comes out, Bridget would come out, you know what I mean, to sort of keep that one tank out there. I, you know, obviously the game probably didn't do that as well as I'd hoped, but... For a while, um, I was pretty much using Rex as just big di- healer. Um, I like sort of having that control of being able to be like, all right, you know, my party's getting a little low. Let me make sure I get a couple potions out there um, as well as being able to collect them. So then that's why when Nia, you know, we found out she was a blade and I could use her as a blade, then I was going um, Pyra, Nia, and then I had another healer. But then once I started and... Um, David touched on it a little bit before with the sort of that, I don't know, want to say it's a glitch or, you know, manipulating the attack system by using that first hit and then moving a little bit to reset it. I felt with Pyra, like you could get those arts up so fast um, that I ended up at that point, I would just pretty much use Pyra exclusively. And then I would jump into Nia when I needed some healing help. But, uh, yeah, sort of a strange party, I guess. I, I never really used Zeke, like, at all, unfortunately. Um, and then Nia, like I said, I sort of used half the game, and then, then she ended up making a reappearance when she went into Blade form. But uh, I just, like I said, I liked those three characters, and I wanted to try and make it work. And like I said, it might not have been conventional, but I, I was able to make it through, so. Zeke does a lot of damage, but he's kind of a glass cannon. Uh, in, terms of, in terms of HP, he's probably the weakest. But like he can he can stack damage like just just be absolutely devastating and he has 
the best screams all the time to tell you about the Overbolt Thunderbeam and all kinds of fun information that he has to yell at you about. Um, but in spite of all his screaming, which is immense, he's quite skilled at it. And he, like, if you need to do some damage, he will do it. The problem is because he does so much damage, he pretty easily attracts aggro. Um, even when other people are trying to attract the aggro, he usually ends up picking it up because he'll do an attack that does 9999. Yeah, he nukes too hard. And then it's like, well, now you're in trouble. And then he gets he gets crushed. And that really only was a problem dealing with like the high-level tyrants, where for the enemy it was fine, for like the bosses and stuff, uh, you know, he was strong enough to deal with that. But then we'd go fight like a level 100, and he would just get pounced because he would essentially... He would, he would be doing a bunch of damage, and somebody would be essentially def, uh, drawing aggro, and then their aggro meter would, or their aggro drawing skill would need to meter up again, and then he would pop that attack, and that was it. Like he he drew all the attention and was done. <laughs> a couple quick hits, and he was out of there. No, it was one hit usually. It would usually be like, I'm gonna do this enemy does ten thousand damage to him. It's all over. And so, there, like, I, all I could do was basically try to up-armor him as best as possible. Cool. Well, we're doing good. I think it's time for uh, one last break, and we'll come back, and we'll get a deep discussion about the story. Yep. So hopefully uh, you're still with us. I know we're a couple hours in now, but uh, it's really going to get good. We're going to talk a little bit about the story. Uh, we're going to talk about the ending and kind of wrap it up. Um, so just to start off, uh, we'll just discuss. So the writing team for the Xenoblade 2 uh, is still uh, Takahashi. Uh, basically, he came up with the story and had uh, two screenwriters that he presented the script to. Uh, so that's uh, Takeda and, oh man, <laughs> Hayodu. And basically, uh, they just split it up and wrote the script for the story that he had come up with. James, if you want to uh, give us uh, basically a rundown of from the conduit to the, to the end. And... I'll, actually, I'll actually go in reverse order because that might be easier. Sure. Uh, so Rex discovers the... the... The, the frozen Pyra, and she is referred to as one of the Aegis. Pyra herself is looking to get to the World Tree, which is this, this large structure that dominates all of Alras, the, the, the world in which they live. Pyra herself has been sealed for 500 years following an event known as the Aegis War, which happened 500 years ago between her and the Aegis Malos. Um, she at the time was using her other form of Mithra. Pyra has two forms, Pyra and Mithra. And essentially, they fought an existential war, whereas Malos has basically decided he wanted to destroy everything due to essentially being infected by nihilism. Mithra essentially was acting as his, act his, his opposition. She was assigned to the driver Adam at that point, who becomes the legendary hero through which most of the dynasties of the modern-day Arrest are built. Um, although not actually, just kind of in name. Prior to that, the continents, the, the Titans, had largely been locked in war with one another, and the Praetor Amalfus, who ended up running Indal, was... The Pope. Yeah, well, he wasn't the Pope yet. He was the driver for the other Aegis. 
yeah. he, he had stolen the the two the two stones that re- that represent the Aegis's core crystals from the world tree after climbing it, uh, largely looking for the tools through which to destroy the world because he is the source of all of this nihilism because he had a really bad life. That's, I mean, that's largely what it comes down to. The war made him essentially not want the world to exist anymore. He climbed the world tree to meet the creator, uh, which was their god, which they assumed lived at the top of the world tree where he found the core crystals for mythos and... Um, why am I blanking on his name now? I just said it like 30 seconds ago. Malos? Malos, yeah. Yeah, but well, again, they see they've got the, the other names like Numa and I Yes, forget. they have many see. names. <laughs> and then he basically took those back and he, he joined himself to Malos. He didn't dare do the other one. Um, and ultimately that ends up in the hands of Adam and they lead the war and that basically torches about half the world. Three, uh, three Titans, I believe. Yep. Prior to that, they largely had gone through a long series of evolution where the world had essentially evolved um, basically down to the point where the first titans were essentially monocellular organisms that evolved like the animals of Earth. I'm serious. And the reason they did was because they were actually being based on the evolution of Earth, Earth's animals, based on recombinant DNA or some bullshit that was being absorbed by the Cloud Sea, which it turns out is actually bio-machines that were created by a scientist who would later be proclaimed as God living atop the world tree. Because you see, about a billion years ago, he was a scientist who was known by the name... Anyone want to jump in with this one? Klaus. Klaus. Klaus, who you will recognize is the scientist from the original Xenoblade. In fact, the very beginning of this game is the exact same, the very beginning of this timeline is the exact same as the one in Xenoblade 1. The conduit has appeared as an interdimensional object from Earth. They're running science on it to try to figure out how they can use it to solve problems. Uh, they get attacked, and Klaus uh, essentially activates a bunch of robot defenses around the space station, or they try to. These end up becoming the weapons of the Aegis later in the, in the game timeline. And the interdimensional portal essentially opens up thanks to the conduit that destroys all reality. And then Klaus uses the, the remaining world tree science to recreate reality over the course of billions of years of evolution. Klaus finds himself stuck in two realities, one of which is the world of Xenoblade 1 and one of which is the world of Xenoblade 2. In both cases, he is revered as a god. Yeah, I just, just want to quickly point out, uh, John Reardon had a, a great video about this too. Uh, where he had the two, he intermixed the two videos to show that yeah, it's the exact same one. And yeah, he, it's and the, he did the two, the, the two tellings of the same scene. Yes, um, you kind of get a bit more in the Xenoblade Two right. version in terms of the, like you said, the mechs that are fighting around the station and and you know how they kind of end up being incorporated into the Xenoblade Two world. But the, yeah, it, it's that that establishes that Xenoblade Two is essentially a parallel. It's you know it's happening at the same time. We have a very specific frame of reference for that because Klaus knows when he's about to pass away, because, right. uh, and that's because of what happens at the end of Xenoblade One. So you know these games are kind of running alongside each other. Yeah. So Shulk, you could actually hear Shulk basically giving his "We're about to kill a god" speech. Um, yeah. Coming yeah. from the other universe, which is why they have to rush in this universe because. Once he dies in one, he's done in both. And that means that the, the world tree, which is actually just a fucking space station, because of course it is, is going to fall to, is going to, fall to Earth, which it does. And then once it does, the, the, the 
the Sargasso that he has been emitting onto the world to absorb the ruins of the first world that he ultimately destroyed goes away because, the, the, of course, the station's not there producing it anymore. And the land reemerges and everybody can go live on the land, which is not terribly dissimilar from what Shulk does when he gets control of the conduit <laughs> in, his, in his reality um, and essentially resets the world. These people are ridiculous. <laughs> These writers are ridiculous. It's definitely, I mean, it seemed to be the whole cloud sea thing about kind of, you know, uh, the way it's trying to sort of reconstitute the world. It kind of, that reminded me, that concept reminded me of Nausicaa. It's yes. been a few, it's been quite a while no, since you're I've right. watched, watched Nausicaa, but that whole, the, you know, the sort of the sand the, uh, that's purifying the the world in Norsica so that the water's drinkable again and all that kind of stuff. You know, people think it's just kind of you know it's got it's barren and kind of destroyed, but actually it's you know it is it, it's a process that's running to kind of um, begin again. So yeah, definitely feel like they had some inspiration there. What's what's amazing is they just hard retconned basically. Like this, there's no indication in the first Xenoblade this was planned. This is just this is just a thing they did. And so they basically like created this weirdo parallel universe. It's like, okay, we'll we'll make it a sequel, but then we'll call it the sequel. But then in interviews, we'll say it's not a sequel. Yeah, because you know it kind of it is in a different world, right? But but yeah. connected, um, you know, by that one kind of uh, you know that portal or whatever. So it's it's I mean it I kind of um, it was interesting. That having that whole uh, component to it. There's a few. Like I said, in a lot of ways, it's not. You're terribly meaningful for the game, but there's a few things they get in there, like Malos essentially wields as a, a, you know, a sword very much like the. Oh, Manado. it's a Monado. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. they, don't they it call is, it? Yeah. No, it I is. Think they yeah, call it, is it the and he shouts out stuff like you know that that's consistent with the Monado attacks yeah. in the original Xenoblade and stuff like that. So it's not it's not just the the, the kind of the Klaus stuff uh, that connects no. them. I guess um, yeah, the more obvious. Yeah. No, I I thought the connection was really cool, but. I guess David could sort of chime in a little bit because he hasn't actually played Xenoblade 1. So, like, I guess as you were saying, it, it's a sequel, but it's not. But I'm sure it, I mean, I know David loved it. So, obviously, it's you don't need to have that connection to one, but it just sort of makes it a little more richer and meaningful having that connection. Yeah. Well, that's like when I first saw the scene, uh, to, like that scene in Outer Space with Klaus where they're looking back in history. Uh, like it didn't mean anything to me because I'd never seen the the first Zeno, or never played the first Xenoblade, and then it's funny because when they talked about the third Aegis, kind of just screwed off. I thought that was kind of yeah. funny because I'm like, well, what do you mean the third Aegis? Just well, yeah, it screwed off for DLC. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, like that's, that's, that's so obviously what the DLC yeah. is going to be. The third yeah, Aegis it, shows up and just wrecks house. And I'm yeah, all it's, it's kind of interesting that I, I, I'd seen some kind of speculation that maybe that was an allusion to Alvis in the original Xenoblade, but I never thought that because Alvis was was meant to be the space station's computer, sort right? Of given form, so you, you, I, I've mentioned before that, that, that uh, the original Xenoblade's ending is basically a mashup of 2001 and Planet of the Apes. And uh, in this construction, Alvis is Hal, basically, you know, and uh, Hal becomes a an anime character, basically. I mean, Al- Alvis is basically just Q from Star Trek. He just shows up and like shit. That's, d- that's does, also true. Yeah. Does does weird stuff and then disappears, and everybody goes, "The fuck was that?" 
He is less camp than Q, though. He is less camp than than most people are. Yeah, but I mean, he basically shows up, does something weird. Everybody leaves. Everybody's like, what the the hell? (laughs) What was that? No, I don't really see how you could kind of spin it. Like you said, there's some retconning going on. So, oh, yeah. Mm, yeah uh, I mean, I, I don't really see you could spin it that the third Aegis was Alvis. And well, no, and went, the, went off to the, the, other the, Aegis, the Aegis pieced out after the Conduit event anyway. So, yeah, yeah. So it's going to, it's, I mean. It's, it's, but I guess, I mean, the biggest thing is that Klaus is a very different character here. I mean, he's he's half a character, uh, which we, we, we didn't, but it's very much, you know, he's, He's he is a sort of a godlike figure in both, but he's you know he's more much more of an arsehole in the other one of it, and becomes the you know he's ultimately the antagonist. Whereas here he's you know, the sort of remorseful, he's more humble. Uh, yeah, exactly, uh, kind of thing. And so and that's uh, that's where this sort of because you do wonder, you know, uh, before even before you're thinking about them being connected in in any particular way. It's just a sort of RPG trope in general about killing God, and that's basically what you do in the original Xenoblade. I mean, you, I, I guess it's you not only kill God, but you kind of renounce the idea of gods. Um, you know, the idea it was like we don't need. You know, Shulk could become one, but he kind of chooses not to, right? Because he thinks, yeah, it's, it, it's very much like uh, George Washington refusing to be king. Um, you know, he, 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 he except could Shock, have been. Shock still flexes godly power at the very end. He's like, "No, I'm going to remake the world." I'm, I'm sure you know, George Washington could have been a king-like figure if he wanted to be after the Revolutionary War, but he he chose not to because that was you know very much part of what they fought for was to not have figures like that, and that's what Shulk does. It's uh, it's it's weird because Klaus in Xenoblade itself is one of two gods that ultimately come out of the event because he and his assistant both become gods. Yes. But in, he becomes Zanzad. I can't remember what, what the other, the other one's name was. Maynith? Maynith. Yeah. yeah. But in, in Xenoblade 2, Klaus becomes a god, although not, not reincarnated. He just, his existence is yeah, asunder. Yeah. Well, what's left of him in that universe just kind of persists indefinitely. But we, we see what became of Maynith, or the woman who was Maynith. Um, she gets turned into a monster. Who we Because like, she becomes that monster. We find her ID card at the bottom floor of the world tree. And then we murk her super bad. At least I did, because I was really high level. <laughs> so it's like... <laughs> Like, things got really bad in, in one reality for Klaus. In the other reality, things were pretty good, except for the whole getting captured thing, which did happen to him. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's... it's Yeah, I mean, you're right. It, it, is a, it, is a, it is some retconning, but, like... But the point is, like I said, in the original, you kind of have not just killing a god, but, you know, renouncing the idea of gods. In this one, you kind of think, oh, you know, are we just going to do that again? Is that, you know, we're going to get there and... We're gonna kill him or whatever, but no, you know that that is not what he's about to get killed by your party from the first game indirectly, um, and it's about kind of do you know it's about stopping Malos and and kind of doing what you can to kind of help him be at peace with the notion that he he, he done buggered up pretty hard. I mean, when you unmake reality, that's about as hard as you can. <laughs> yeah, can do it's it. it's it's up there as as uh, uh, goofs go. When when they have you dive off the cliffs of Mortha, and like you get down there and you're like, "What the fuck is happening down here?" Because it's just ruins. Yeah, the ruin world. Yeah, uh, down below. 
It's like, oh, so all the stuff that, because throughout the game, whenever people talk to Rex about diving, because, you know, he's a salvager, basically they go like, oh, is this stuff from 500 years ago? Well, sometimes, but a lot of it's stuff, we don't even know what it was. It's really old. And it's like, wait, so Rex has been coming down here for years and has never stopped to ask, like, this is weird. (laughs) He had a job to do. Yeah, but I thought there was a point where they couldn't get that far because the pressure from the cloud sea killed you. It is. It's below the cloud sea. But, like, he's still pulling up stuff from it. It's like, yeah, you didn't feel like maybe we should wonder where this stuff's coming from? I don't know whether it starts getting absorbed by the the sea at a certain point and kind of rises up or something. But, yeah, yeah, the things that you salvage are are the places in the game are just sort of strewn about down there. Right, aren't they? You know that you could get the same things, but just just as standard kind of collectibles rather than salvage things. But you're also applying logic to salvaging when every time you come out of the salvage, it's a treasure chest. Yeah, well, yeah he pulled it up. He, pulled, he put it in the treasure chest to pull it up with him. No, it's more troubling when it's multiple treasure chests, and you're like, wait, what? What? Yeah. The hell just happened he was here? Lugging weight. What did you guys think of like the main villains or or? protagonists here you know i mean obviously um or antagonists i mean uh, so malos is just broken like i mean that that's yeah what I, I, I kind of i kind of like the idea that the even though amalthus and malos are like estranged and as drivers and blades go and uh you know opposed to one another they're ba- you know that they're it is really you know it is kind of amalthus's fault that malos is the way he is so you know they are they're connected, you know, even though they're kind of enemies. What's weird is, so Malos and co. are going to find the god, the the architect, as they call him in this game, to essentially demand that his father destroy the world. Like, that's their plan. Like, the Torna is just, Torna wants revenge on everything, on everyone. Yeah, and ba- and, and what they don't know is he would have just said, been there, done that. Yeah, so well, pretty much, but... <laughs> Amalthus goes up the world tree to begin with to demand the same thing. And ultimately, yeah, that's yeah. what convinces that, that energy, that connection is what convinces Malos to want that too. Yeah. But then Amalthus goes to stop him because, no, I'm going to be the one to do it. Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to say. He wasn't, it wasn't that he wanted the axe stopped. He just wanted to be the one to do it. Yeah, he wants that, that power. And it, it's like it gives – it shows why a lot of the blades end up because it, you know, the blades all lose their memory every time they they turn back into crystals, and it shows how much influence they have over the driver has over their blades. So maybe like maybe Pandora is totally normal in the past, but man, once Zeke popped, that was <laughs> shit. She was about to have a real bad life for a while. Uh, well, it seemed like there was a an implication that the the driver that resonated with the blade that there was some kind of I don't know if you'd want to say it, like personality or they kind of took on. The, the characteristics of the driver. I mean, that makes sense. If, in its, I mean, if you're with that person for your entire life, of course you're going to sort of, you know. Right, they're going to influence you. But the the connection also seems to be important there. Because, like, I mean, when you get, um, I'm trying to remember what their names are, but there are two blades that come together as a story quest, or as a side quest that have been, they were, like, human hunters who were stealing, bla- stealing blades. No, it, is it Praxis and Theory? Yeah, and then when you get them, they're horrified about what their past life was. Like, they're both super upset about it. But at the time, they're like, I'm going to rip your throat out. I'm like, whoa, that's, that's rude. Well, and then there's the, the obvious one was when uh, Rex meets Amalthus for the first time and sees Malos. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. 
and and he gets that feeling. It's of, interesting though because these I, guys are the same guy. It's, yeah, it's funny though because that kind of you make you think like oh uh, you know that that he's that he's like some sort of puppet of Malos. The way that that visual is kind of you know uh, there. Yeah, like, that was it, how I read. If it anything, it's really the other way around, or you know. But they, like I said they are. They believe they're enemies. You know, they are opposing each other, but it's the same that that connection that's totally kind of you know uh, seems to have been broken is still there and so they they have the same kind of emotional they're almost pushing to the same goal they're yeah. almost to steal a literature term from somewhere else they're almost star-crossed like they yeah. they they essentially both want the same thing but the situation has evolved in such a way that they can no longer be together um and mm. it's through the, it's usually it's through their own hand they've both they've both done things the other one can't deal with and so they end up going the op- their opposite directions um, to the point where Amalthus was in the party, and they, they sort of they sort of hint this. Amalthus was in Adam's party because some of the blades that fought with Amalthus mentioned that like um, the the guy who runs the the theater. Cool. Yeah, like he knew Adam. Well, how do you know Adam? Because he was there. Well, why was he there? Yeah. Because Amalthus was there. It's like oh, so he actually opposed. Like he was he was involved in opposing him that long ago. Well, the thing the thing that seemed to me to to keep them separated was Jin, because it was kind of like okay, well, Malice kind of lost his way or whatever, met Jin, and then they kind of found a, a purpose together. But Jin was in the party that fought Malos too. Like everybody, basically every person you meet who was alive five hundred years ago was fighting against Malos, except Malos. Yeah, Jin. Well, Jin fought Malos, but I don't. But Jin didn't like Amalthus because. Amalthus was the one that killed Jin's driver. Right. Yeah. I mean, Jin, Jin turns after they beat Malos. Jin, yeah. to me, is one of the most interesting characters throughout the whole game. He just Jin's a Gundam antagonist, which is even which which makes sense because he's drawn like one. He's like, oh, I've got I've got a bad history. You don't get to find out about it, but it's bad. It's real bad. And then you find out, yep, he got betrayed. There it is. What's crazy is that who planned all this shit. Like, doesn't it feel sometimes like everything is just crazy? Well, what I don't understand is is the 500-year gap. What was going on during that 500 like, years? I mean, like, was, were they planning that whole thing for 500 years, and then it's, they finally figure out, okay, well, we need to do this then. Malos walked around in the rain a lot, is what I gathered from the, <laughs> from the flashbacks. He spent a lot of time in rain. And they they somehow put Jin's driver in a an icicle, which they never bothered to explain that shit. They just happened. Yeah, it's, it's just, just something about the thing. And she and she dies on the battlefield. Yeah, but he, then he then he flesh ate her. And then he flesh ate her. So there there should be like a body with a big hole in it. <laughs> which they which they very kindly never actually get into too much detail about what that actually looks like, which I greatly appreciate. But like it seems like Amalthus is planning everything because he he destroys. He just he destroys um, Torna, the continent of Torna, Torna right? Yeah. So that that actually yeah. wasn't destroyed during the war. Somehow, in five hundred years, everyone's forgotten that. But hey, actually, that continent got destroyed after the war, which is kind of weird. Well, and I don't think he was Praetor at the time either. No, he wasn't, because he was he had just come out of being in, in Adam's party. So, like, what? Mm-hmm. Why did he destroy Torna? Well, because they had weapons and stuff, and they were they were a threat to him. Okay. But didn't he also want to just use them for all the core crystals and then he was yeah. blackmailing the whole, you know, because what Torna was based off of the word of Adam, right? But really, they were, they didn't actually, 
follow that and he knew about it so he was blackmailing to just oh that no that's 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 tantau oh okay yep yeah i think torna was i was just gonna say torna was the so torna and judicium it was the like technology versus nature like torna represented like that balance of with nature sort of thing and judicium was the one that had all the crazy weapons right and so judicium got blown up during the war and but and so did uh temperantia mm-hmm. but uh torna got blown up after the war as just kind of like amalthus's mop-up operations for yeah. for reasons for re- don't worry for for reasons he was blackmailing tantal I guess it was just like he was just putting the the main powers out. He was just you know snuffing them out because Tantau, who was relatively powerful at that point, he put you know they they claimed to be the descendants of Adam, which was a lie. They did, but again, we this is in that whole like, hey, we're actually going to give Zeke a real backstory. They did it because they knew if they weren't, they wouldn't be able to keep order, and this was the only way they could save the continent. He enslaves them effectively to produce. Uh, chips for the blades he cre- he creates some kind of weird thing where he can sell that he is the person who can purify core crystals so people can use them it's weird it's it's like he he's planning for something but it doesn't make any sense but, why well, i'm trying to think what con- uh what titan it was um what i guess was it tantel that gives birth to the new um the new titans uh that was Torna. I, I'm wondering if that's why Torna was destroyed because Torna was the one where the, the blades would go to Torna to like cocoon, yeah, into so that a they Titan. would turn into Titan. And I think he was, yeah, I think he wanted that process destroyed so that the Titans would stop. Yeah, that that's sort of his uh, failsafe if he d- didn't get to the World Tree to be able to meet the Architect to destroy the world, that it would eventually just sort of take care of itself. As obviously many of the, like I know uh, Mordain you know was on its last legs literally so I guess maybe you know he was sort of planning multiple ways to ultimately get to his end goal. Yeah, I guess this was this was just like all right. Well, look, if I can't get the architect to do it for me, I'll just fuck everything up. I guess I guess the the reason well no we know why he went on his killing spree because he saw the soldiers actually do the killing when he was working in the church although he was still pretty bitter at that point and then he basically just said all right i'm just gonna, I'm just gonna kill all these people um, you want you want to go kill i'm gonna kill everybody yeah well it started with his mother right just, yeah and then he said it was the kid um then it was the person he helped and it's like all right that's mm-hmm. it that's it everybody's dying and he i mean he's this is to make another reference to recent star wars this is basically a game where everyone's plan goes super wrong and which like I said, it's pretty much the way that's because like nobody's plan works out. Even even the best laid plan, so a plan that spent five hundred years in evolution, like is immediately turned sideways, which is kind of fun. But yeah, like basically everyone wants to get up to the world tree so they can blow up the world. And damn it, I'm not gonna let anyone else do it before me. Except for Rex, who like I said earlier, just wants to go there because a hot girl wants him to. <laughs> He's, there is a beautiful simplicity to Rex that I appreciate. Well, also, there, there's some suggestion that, you know, they might be able to... Because, as you said, the whole thing is the world is in terminal decline in its current... Its current state is unsustainable. And that somehow, by going there, they're going to be able to reverse that. 
Right. Uh, you know, I actually give people land to live on and all that kind of stuff, which obviously ultimately you do. Uh, you know, uh, so that is kind of achieved, even though they had absolutely no idea how it would be achieved. They just assumed the god up there would do it. I think the weakest part of the ending for me is is um, Pyra and Mithra coming back just out of nowhere. Mm. Oh, just, yeah. Because mm-hmm. you make such a thing. It's a you know, very, really early, you know, very much the beginning of the game. We establish the link between them. That, you know, one dies, they both die. Or one gets injured, they both feel the pain, all that kind of stuff. So it's like, well, you know, you can't, if you kill one, you kill the other. And then you have this whole sequence of like, okay, well, actually... She can kind of, you know, transfer all the life force to him, sacrifice just herself to save everybody else, and that's that. You know, so you have that, and then you just kind of take it all back with no, not even a semblance of of explanation or something that fits into something else. It just, uh, as far as I could discern anyway. Uh, So, yeah, just it just felt like a really kind of cheap like uh you know like actually we don't want this to be bittersweet so let's just make it sweet <laughs> you know and yeah. have them just come back yeah. and to me I, I think the better ending would have been let let mithra pyra be the sacrifice to save everyone and then they could have ended it with like nia and rex holding hands or something because they were kind of alluding to that a little bit too that's a happy enough ending for me i think i think the 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 reality of the situation is that they basically just said, I mean, how they, how they, you know, wished it away is essentially like, this was the last gift of the architects. Like, okay, no, I'm going to, I'm going to not let that happen, which fine, whatever. But yeah, it it does come off a little cheesy, but it, if they hadn't, I mean, they, they had to do something at the end, obviously. And if they hadn't done the the relatively high intensity we're gonna make Poppy the conduit of sadness scene, which is which is not okay. Like just we're gonna we're gonna put Poppy in the most childish form and then just make her a complete bucket of sadness. I think it kind of cheapened that whole exchange in a pretty pretty dramatic way. But if it also probably made it so they could do post game DLC, which is probably important to them. I mean, just be ruthlessly utilitarian about it. Well, that poppy scene was funny to me because it's like that's the plot hole that you didn't want to leave. Well, it's I like I like that though. I like that they thought about it. Like, yeah. like well, wait, wait. She, she could just she could just go fly over there. Well, no, they made a deal earlier, so that happy that happy high five scene is now super tragic. You were laughing at it earlier. That'll teach you a lesson. <laughs> like it just it felt like it felt exploitative. Like okay. You got to see Poppy being adorable again, but actually, actually, this was super sad and she was being manipulated. It's like, whoa, what? That's not cool game. Manipulated by a high five? <laughs> well, to an extent, yeah. I mean, like, she was being manipulated as a child because she's, you know, she has that naive personality, which is what makes her, like, probably the most likable Blade because kids can, I mean, she has this kind of naive honesty. Yeah, but at the same time, so it also has these sort of savage put downs of her master. Which she does, like, but I, like, I guess some kids are like. I guess some kids can be like. Every that, though, kid but. is like that because they don't have. <laughs> here's the thing: kids that age are smart enough to observe things that adults pick up and won't say, but they don't have the social mores to not say them, and so they just say what they observe, and they're old enough now to pick up on things that are uncomfortable for everybody. 
And then they just say it out loud. And they're proud of it because they picked it up. <laughs> and so they just make the whole room awkward. It's the best. Because they're basically like your drunk friend who's really observing things and will just say whatever's on their mind, except they're totally sober and no one can get mad at them about it. Yeah, I was just going to say you can't be mean to them. So they'll just they'll just straight up say things that you're like, oh my god, did they just say that? Okay. And then, yeah, she gets these really – that's why when it turned, Poppy gets older, the put-downs feel much less – much more cold. Playful, yeah, more heart hurtful. Yeah, because like – Poppy, whatever, is just, is just saying – Poppy Alpha is just saying them because she doesn't know any better. She's a kid. Poppy Cutie Pie is saying these things. My master is useless. It's like, whoa. <laughs> All right. Well, that's that's not nice. So, yeah, like it, wrapping it up all like, – but at the same time, they then – roll even that that emotionally exploitative moment back where everyone's in shock. It's them, and she just like a child runs over to them. It's like, okay, yeah, I get it. Yeah, I think, I mean, for me, I thought her sacrificing herself and even that little joint, like, to Poppy, like, you know, don't do that. I thought that was a good ending. Like you said, you sort of, you know, obviously go through all that stuff and pull up to the, the fresh new land. And I thought maybe, like, Rex would have looked down at the core crystal and saw, like, a faint glow to sort of just be like, you know, somewhere, some part of Mithra and Pyra or, or you know what I mean, or in existence. She's still but a blame. Yeah. Like, in theory... Or that maybe one day she'll be back Right. Or yeah, but to, like you said, to all of a sudden they were just back and like, oh... No, they're not just back, and everyone. also they're split. Yeah, yeah they're now... And, and they both remember. The discreet beings, like, yeah. rather than having a... Which, yeah, which is dumb, because... Timeshare or... <laughs> neither of them are actually the full being, so it's like, well, wait a minute. This is, this is dumb. If you look at the... I actually just tweeted it out. If you look at the end, like the screen, the, the, the starting screen always reflects where you are in the story. Yes. And if you go to this, that, that screen after you beat the game, Rex is holding both of their Yes, hands. he is. Yep. Nope, he is. Like, that it's, dirty dog. It's, it's, it's weird and kind of unpleasant when you realize Rex is still a kid. Well, <laughs> why, why do you think he had to get him to Elysium so bad? He knew it was waiting for him. On the on the on the subject of the you know the the those two characters really especially uh, I mean the whole dual character thing did seem to be again a bit of an unnecessary convolution of of the narrative. I'm oh, not, totally, it totally it, is. It had some utility for like the comedy stuff and and you know kind of frankly I preferred Mithra's character just being kind of a, a standoffish with Rex right, rather than the love fest with the with Pyra and Rex, but. It, it, I, d I don't really, didn't really pay off in a you know, meaningful way why you had this split. It, it, it didn't seem to be a moment where it's like, oh, that's why, you know, they, they, they did this. It, yeah. it, just, it just seemed to be kind of an indulgence it, it, it of some sort. It would have made more sense if 500 years ago it wasn't Mithra fighting Malos either. Because why would she have fought him with half of her strength anyway? If it was like, oh no, she was Numa. But like we we put yeah, it's something like that 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 battle had kind of split her 
you right. know, because it's so because it's so traumatic was the experience or something. You know, it, it didn't even have that level of like embeddedness to it. It was it, so. I'm not sure how much uh, localization. You know, maybe the, there was some nuance in there that made it a bit kind of more natural feeling in the original script. Who, yeah, that's total speculation. I don't know, but right. I will say I just I I think I probably would have have been a bit warmer towards Pyra. Um, you know, because I mean, Pyra's character is meant to be sort of very caring and kind of vulnerable, despite being this very powerful being. Um, but a lot of the sort of the the drama where it's like, okay, you know, she's she's uh, she might be this ridiculously powerful thing, but you know, she's got feelings. She's she's very kind of uh, emotional, that kind of stuff. It it would have played a lot better if the design were different, because the design is just so terminally absurd that it really like it, it it for me it kind of took me out of those emotional uh, kind of uh, storytelling scenes. So yeah, she seems to be like you said a more reserved and timid character, and then yeah, she's barely covered. Well, it's it's not just it's not just the it's not just the sort of it's uh, the you know the, yeah it's it's everything about it. it's not just that it's uh, kind of revealing or that sort of the proportions are ridiculous. You know, I mean, whatever costumes where the proportions are so ridiculous. It's it it especially with the camera angles they're employing. Or yeah, then you've got the revealing nature of it, and just uh, then just uh, just the look of it as well. I don't know. I just found the whole thing was just too. You know, it, that's like a design for a different character. Yeah, you like, know? like it, 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 I don't know why that design is attached to to that character in terms of its emotional. You know what they're trying to the mileage they're trying to get out of it story wise. It's just it, it's just uh, it, it doesn't it don't sell, it doesn't fit to me. To your question, mm. one scene kind of sums up every, like everything for me, and it's the scene, the second graveyard scene, where uh, Pyro is talking to his parents. <laughs> And uh, Gramps is trying to basically like hint at the fact that there's like I don't know some kind of romantic entanglement, but Rex has no idea what's going on. Well, I I actually like that because Rex is an idiot, and <laughs> and Gramps is basically just like no, he's an idiot. We know, like it, I there's there is this sort of there's this sort of like weird everyone is making exceptions for Rex because everyone kind of recognizes he's a dumb kid, even though he's doing adult things. And I kind of appreciate that even even that one, even reflecting to his dead parents, he's getting burned by his guardian. Like, no, I know. I know. I know. And I know there's two of them. And I know that they're also destroyers of the world. This is a bad thing. But like, we'll we'll just we'll we'll roll we'll let this ride this one out. We'll see what happens. Uh, for whatever reason, that that amuses me immensely. I uh I don't know like I'm curious. So I, I did a little bit of digging on this one. Um, just to see, because if you've never dealt with with the people who wrote this game, they sure love their like Christian mythology stuff. And uh, sure enough, the the Aegis are referred to as the uh, Ten No Sehi or the Heavenly Holy Grail. All kinds of weird like Christian Christian terminology. And I wonder if like the duality shit is going to supposed to come play in there too or whatever, because that's the kind of thing that these writers would have done. But. Yeah, all of that is lost if that's what they were attempting to accomplish. I gotta say, it's 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 ultimately it just feels like it was played for jokes. You just needed more elements for your uh, combos. Like, well, we better split Pyra into two. I mean, that's basically what happens with Thora. So you know, eh. 
So that they have a big, I guess the big DLC coming is, is supposed to be post story, right? Isn't that what that is? It? Yeah, I want. Well, I'd have to look it up, but I I know some of them are just extra quests, right? But there's there's a bigger one coming later this year. I can't. Yeah, I, I know. Um, it, I believe it's set for holiday or or no, I guess maybe it just says fall. But um, here you go. I know there's like I think it's May, September, and December. Uh. Fall 2018, brand new story content pack. Brand new story. They haven't described anything else as story content, though, have they? Yeah, because what you got in January, uh, new quests pack, helpful items pack, helpful items pack, Japanese pack, uh, voice pack, helpful items. Um, Yeah, they don't have any more real detail on okay. anything. It just says... You got spring uh, 2018 is new rare blade pack. Summer 2018 is new challenge mode pack. And fall 18 is brand new story content pack. A brand new story and adventure is how they describe it. Yeah, I'm figuring it's going to probably be a pretty sizable chunk. Like you said, it, it would be interesting if that third Aegis sort of comes back just, into the picture. and we Just like, see oh, you, good. you guys fix this? Nah. Just kidding. <laughs> I've had enough of this, y'all. He's like, uh, I've been watching the entire time. Uh, I, I, that was, I was going to gut. So, like, what, what do you think that looks like? What do you think their, their brand news? Because we've seen that with Zelda now. It was you got a motorcycle. I wonder if like a new Titan will emerge out of some, like, oh god, in the cloud sea. We didn't even realize, even though it disappeared. We didn't notice this big giant Titan hanging out. Or more Ardane and Uriah are like, you know, we were fighting for land, but, you know, let's just keep fighting. Because now it's just fun. Like, let's... Yeah. I miss it. No, I yeah. want that land over there. Yeah, this piece is bullshit. Yeah. You know what's like living on Mars? God, we were living on a Mars that walks around with a giraffe neck. I don't want to hear it. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I'm kind of shocked they're running the DLC for a year, but I guess it goes back to Nintendo's plan of, like, keep the thing going so you don't sell the game. But you know what? Like, the weird thing is most of the packs are so, like, I don't, I don't want to say useless completely, but, like, so, you know, sort of minor compared to, like, like oh, a new quest pack isn't going to necessarily make me jump back into it, or a new rare blade pack. You know, obviously yeah. the story mode will definitely get me to get the item, game, but helpful items. Like, dude, you there's no item you could give me that is helpful right now. I don't know, James. They might give you a couple more legendary common blades. Rex Rex owns every store in all rest. What could you possibly give him? Well, I I wonder if they'll go back in time. Oh God. So we thought about that. So we talked about that on RFN with Zelda. We're like, are they just going to go? Yeah, because it was it's similar it's structurally. There's a lot of with Zelda. There's all that referring back to the the calamity, and then right. this it's the 500 years Aegis War. So Rex know, to like, get a motorcycle. Play as Adam. Yeah, yeah. Play as Adam. Take out Malos. That that initial Aegis War. Have Jin as your driver, or your uh, blade and Cole. I, I'm just gonna go with Rex gets a motorcycle. Like that's what it got. That's what it needs to be. That but it's be... actually just Pyra's new form. Oh, <laughs> I don't want that. I don't think the Xenoblade engine could handle going that fast on a motorcycle. Neither could the Zelda engine. What's your point? <laughs> <laughs> it, it actually breaks that game if you do it right. If you really push that thing, Zelda essentially just just falls apart. Yeah, they'll have you going full blast on uh, Gormot 
And then you'll just end up on more Ordain. There you go. You can launch off the archipelago paths and see how far you can get. Yeah. You just get a blade that you can ride. That's what it comes down to. All right, well, we're we're pushing three hours now, so maybe we should uh, have some final thoughts and then go back and start our next our next round of Xeno. For me, Xenoblade 2 is uh, my favorite of the three. Um, by far, it beats out X. To me, X is just... I, I prefer, you know, more Japanese RPGs where I feel like X was going more for the Western, like, open world. Hey, there's just quests all, all over. I sort of like the more linear option with like the option to sort of go left and right for different side quests so i think uh the you know advancement of the battle system and couple that with some really great you know different areas to explore and i I just felt too really you know outside of the the field skills for me that was really the big uh the big thing that sort of annoyed me but otherwise i i just really love two a lot and uh I can't wait to see what they have in store for us next. I'm I'm not going to be able to say like, oh, I like this one more than this one because I like all three of them for different things. I think I think in terms of just like technical standpoint, obviously this game blows up the other two. Although I think what Xenoblade X does in terms of its world and how big the damn thing is is probably more impressive. I I, I meant to mention this when we were talking about the characters and how they've they've changed how they depict their characters. There was an interview where they basically admitted, like, yeah, we got made fun of for the faces. So we we uh we went into it. And like it it matters. It it acts like all of this presentation stuff they did matters. And this game was so raw when it came out. Like they've done a bunch of enhancements since then, but like a million things that made me just annoyed. And if you listen to RFN, you heard me list them all. And then it somehow sneak into my number two spot last year. Um it surprised even me. But yeah, I've put a ton of time in this game and I really enjoy it. But you know what? I'll, I, I know we have to wait a couple years now for what they're going to do next, but I'm, I'm good. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll look forward to it. <laughs> well, I, uh, I, my battery is apparently running low, so I better be quick here. <laughs> I didn't account for it going this long, evidently. Um, yeah, so uh, for me, I would say, uh, you know, I, I really liked X, uh, you know, similar to James in terms of, um, you know, because it delivered a sort of different kind of experience. So I find it difficult to say I like this more, but at the same time, the return to the more linear kind of guided style, the return of Mitsuda, uh, you know, doing the music and all that, that kind of feel was, was a welcome one. And I appreciated some of the sort of little connections, you know, that we've gone over uh, to the to the other one on, on some level as well. And it kind of, you do wonder whether, you know, some of these little points uh, you know, that we did you know, about... Uh, you know what? How exactly did the world get to that point where they ended up essentially destroying it and all that? Might be the basis for a future game, if not the DLC. Um, but uh, you know, I think for me, the main thing was you know very. You know, it gave me you know what I really wanted out of you know a game in the style of the original Xenoblade. For the most part, it was really just you know the only drawbacks were kind of the I said in a lot of areas these kind of seemingly unnecessary convolutions to the plot to the menus to the field skills that we talked about the affinity charts like everything was a bit more fiddly and complex than I think it needed to be 
um, you know, uh, but um, the, I think the big thing was the fact that it's fully portable kind of helps paper over those cracks a bit, even though the portable mode was definitely you know, more of a compromise than I would have liked, but still indispensable for me getting through the being able to get through the you know the enormity of this game in any kind of reasonable fashion. Yeah, and I kind of agree with you with the portability thing because uh, I guess technically this is probably this would be the first meaty RPG that's like a high on a high def like on the Switch. It's like that first experience with it, uh, where I'm used to um, playing like a Final Fantasy on a PS4 sort of thing, where uh, you know you're not taking it with you. You you it's all you know sitting on your couch like into your TV. So it was a bit of a different experience and was quite enjoyable. And it's, I'm really hoping that we get any future big RPGs end up in some way somehow on the on the Switch because it just that was a, a great way to experience it. It was good to be, you know, I'm at work, I got some free time, you know, I'll just knock a few quests off. Um, you know, nothing. I tried not to do anything that showed like a nice cutscene that you'd want to see in the in the better fidelity on a TV, but yeah. it lets you kind of get the grinding out of the way, you know, and and kept you engaged all all the time. That's the other part too. Is like sometimes you could go a couple of days where you just don't can't get you can't get to your TV, so it, it keeps you engaged all the time. So I mean that that part was great for me, and uh, I think the biggest hook for me since I hadn't played a Xenoblade before was um, the combat was was what really got me into it. I, it was a little slow uh, for that fif first 15 hours, but when they took the training wheels off and let you kind of go, uh, I just enjoyed the how how much variety and and the mixing and matching and and the you know figuring out okay what what mix of blades and and powers do are the most optimal and and that it wasn't always one answer. There's many answers, and it depended on your situation, and, and and that was what made me love Xenoblade so much. Yeah, I I just really hope, like you said, uh, all these RPGs keep coming to the Switch because that that's sort of what happened to me with Persona Five. It's like just to be able to sink that much time on like a console and TV is, oh, after playing the 3DS and now the Switch, it's just a, a welcome surprise. So I, I hope the RPGs keep on coming. Perfect. Well, I, we'll see how this one gets edited, but we're we've clearly went over the three hour mark, so uh, I, I'm assuming that's where it's going to stay. So hopefully we've we've kept everybody uh, riveted and and everyone enjoyed it. Uh, I just want to thank everyone for listening. Uh, we're hoping to to continue this uh, on a bi weekly base. Uh, we want to talk about your favorite RPGs if you're willing to listen. Uh, our next discussion will be in two weeks. It's going to be uh, Radiant Historia Perfect Chronology. Uh, we've got uh, Neil Ronahan is going to be joining us for a discussion about that. And then uh, two weeks after that, we're going to be working on, uh, we're going to be discussing uh, Persona 5. And uh, we've got uh, Seren McNulty uh, signed up for that so far and uh, probably a fourth uh, since it's a, a pretty big one itself. If you have any, oh, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, so on Twitter, we have the Twitter handle for the the segment is it's uh, the Thirsty Mage. So at the Thirsty Mage. So please send us a message. Let us know what you think. Uh, if you enjoyed it or if you didn't, uh, if there's RPGs you'd like to hear us uh, talk about, that'd be great. Um, and if for some reason you don't have access to Twitter, 
feel free to send me an email. My email is davidl at nintendoworldreport.com. And uh, so since this is a brand new segment, uh, it's going to survive on word of mouth. So if, if you loved it or hated it or just whatever you like, just please spread the word and let people know uh, it exists. So, and I'd like to thank our guest for tonight, Casey Gibson. Thank you, sir. It's, uh, it's been a blast. Yeah, thanks for coming out and uh, devoting uh, an entire entire night to uh, a nice discussion. And uh, thank you to uh, our fan host, James Jones. Uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, it was great having you, and your encyclopedic knowledge was very well appreciated. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you again to uh, Mr. Greg Leahy. A pleasure. Yes, they're, they're, they're very. Uh, it's kind of, these games, you know, the kinds of games where you can really go on a deep dive. Which we sure did. Um, but it's you know, actually having the venue to do it is not that easy when you're talking about assembling people who all have to have dedicated like more than a hundred hours of their life to this th same thing, <laughs> and then you got to keep them together for a few hours and all that. So it's a, it's a kind of a rare opportunity, and we're glad to have had it. Yeah, especially when you need to ask one of them to sacrifice their entire sleep before going to work. It, it's a sleep so. could be substituted. It's, well, you know, chemically, it, could be chemically it could be moved around. I mean, it could be moved around in the the, the day if, if need be. Yeah, you could always sleep when you're dead, right? Well, we'll see. So uh, hopefully Greg has a nice shower and a half an hour on his way to work. And uh, but again, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> thanks for coming out. So uh, yeah, thanks everybody. It was it was a great talk, and uh, hopefully uh, everyone enjoyed it, and everyone will come out to the next Thirsty Mage. <laughs>